BFT. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Well, the Pac-12 Conference has got six formidable teams. And my formidable teams, they got six teams in this conference that can beat anyone, anywhere, anytime in this conference, so to speak. I'm not saying that the Pac-12 teams could beat all the best SEC teams, but you give me the top six in the Pac-12, maybe even the top seven, I'll put that against just about any conference in America, and I think we'll get at least mixed results. This is a change for the conference. It's an evolved conference. I don't know if it has a playoff team. i got to be honest with you. I, I, I think USC is good, especially on the offensive side of the ball, but I don't know if they have the defense to hang with the other playoff teams. I'm not going to sell you that narrative today. But I am going to sell you the idea that this conference is better and that going into the last weekend, having six teams in the top 21 in the college football playoff rankings is really impressive. It's not six in the top 25. It's six in the top 21. And if we're being real, I would put Oregon State, I would put them in the teens. I don't think you'd get any argument from people nationally that Oregon State, especially at Research Stadium, I think can beat anyone. And they'll get a chance to do that on Saturday. The Oregon Ducks will be traveling to Research Stadium in the game known as the Civil War. You call it the Civil War. I'll call it the Civil War. I don't, you know, Oregon and Oregon State can call it whatever they'd like to. But we're going to talk about that game today. We're going to make our final Pac-12 picks. We're going to get a visit from Jerry Palm of CBS Sports, who's going to outline the bowl projections that he sees happening. Is it possible the Pac-12 gets two New Year's Six bowl teams? If USC gets into the playoff, is it possible that you know Oregon and or Washington or Utah could get into New Year's Six Bowl games. What has to happen to make that happen? I don't think it's likely, but I'll bounce it off Jerry Palm. Where does he have the Beavers going? Where does he have the Ducks going? What needs to happen this weekend? We'll talk about it. We'll also get a visit from Jonathan Smith on this Civil War Eve Eve. Uh, is it an Eve Eve? No, Civil War Eve would be Friday. Civil War Eve Eve would be Thursday. This is Civil War Eve 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 Eve. So uh, Jonathan Smith will be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour to talk about the game on Saturday. And I'm going to ask him what he's doing for Thanksgiving and what he's thankful for. Why not? We'll have a good interview. Uh, you'll get to listen to it. Whether you are a Duck fan or a Beaver fan, I encourage you to tune in in the 5 o'clock hour and hear Jonathan Smith on this show. Um, we got to start today with our picks. But before I get into the picks, uh, Peter Sampson's in studio, Stevens in studio. They're going to give their picks. I'll give my picks. We'll do our final Pac-12 picks of the week. I put mine out today at johnconzano.com, along with a column that I wrote about why Mario Cristobal was so hated by other Pac-12 coaches. It's true. It's, it's, I don't know if it's a secret, but I'll call it a dirty little secret for the sake of making it sound more intriguing. The dirty little secret about Mario Cristobal is that he spent a lot of time talking about how tough his team was and how physical his team was and how resilient his team was. And I think over time, that graded on a lot of Pac-12 coaches who were recruiting against Mario Cristobal and trying to uh, outduel him for recruits and then encountering him on, uh, uh, on game day in a situation where they felt like, you know, he's got more talent. But, uh, but uh, also, um, by the way, uh, you know, they felt like they were better coaches than he was. 
And so, uh, you know, Mario Cristobal was always talking about guts. He was always talking about planting a cleat in the ground. He was always talking about the physicality of his football teams, uh, how, you know, how tough they were. Remember him after the Ohio State win when he started talking about their performance? You know, real, real deal competitors. Everything's really important to them. Being good teammates are important to them. Being early uh, to do everything, max effort, doing it the right way, treating people right. This team, our culture, the organization, the right kind of guys, and they're tough. You know, they fight through uh, the things that you know typically knock guys out of practice or games. They f they fight through. So um, happy with their, not happy. That's a bad word. Enthused by their continued progress and the fact that they really they have uh, no desire to be praised. They just want to keep getting better and better and. You know, Coach Murball, I mean, he's the best in the business. Doing a great, great job with those guys. Yeah, here at Oregon, we do things differently. I guess that was the mindset. But, it, you know, we found out that the coaches in the Pac-12 didn't much like Mario Cristobal when the 2019 season ended and Oregon beat Utah in the Pac-12 championship game. 37-15, to Justin Herbert was dominant. And within 48 hours, the Pac-12 coaches were told to get their ballots in for voting for Coach of the Year. Mario Cristobal was 11 and two. He was, um, you know, nine and one in the Pac-12 conference. He, uh, you know, he had he had pretty much done everything except beat Arizona State that season, and everybody expected he would be coach of the year. Like, who were the other candidates? Kyle Whittingham. He just beat him by 22 points 48 hours earlier, and the ballots came in, and the coaches do anonymous ballots, and Mario Cristobal did not finish first in the balloting. I don't believe he finished second in the balloting. Uh, and I think Kyle Whittingham walked off, obviously, with the championship, uh, you know, the Coach of the Year award, not championship, but the Coach of the Year award, while Mario Cristobal had the championship. And and then people said, well, maybe it's because Oregon had more talent. It, but the first and second teams on that 2019 All-Pac-12 team, Oregon only had four players recognized. Utah had 10. And so the logic just didn't hold up. It was either that the Pac-12 coaches – uh, you know, intentionally did not vote for Oregon players and Oregon coaches, or they looked past the idea that Kyle Whittingham had more than twice as many first and second team players and got beat by 22 points by Mario Cristobal. So you can't have it both ways. Either Mario Cristobal was just a better coach than Kyle Whittingham and outcoached him in that championship game, or there was something hinky going on with the coaches. Now, I know there was something hinky going on because I talked to coaches in the conference, and all of them were saying, hey, it's obnoxious. This guy is uh, recruiting against us. He's telling everybody that his players are tougher than our players and they're more resilient than our players. And, that, you know, at Oregon, they do things differently. Here at Oregon, we, we just don't stop. We just keep coming. How we train every day, we just don't change it. Tuesdays and Wednesdays, it's block destruction and seven-on-seven seven inside run before we go to team run and play action. I mean, almost play half a game right there before halfway through practice. So technique and toughness and resiliency and execution, uh, we're going to be at a premium in that we just, we just don't stop. We're going to make a commitment and a decision to play harder for longer and more disciplined for longer, and we're just going to keep coming. And that's what our guys did. I kind of wonder... How coaches in the conference, when they heard that stuff from Mario Cristobal, and they saw him doing his MMA stuff in the locker room after a big win. You 
kind of wonder over time how that would feel if you were David Shaw or Chip Kelly or Jonathan Smith or Gary Anderson or whoever was coaching against him at that time. You kind of wonder how that act would play out. And I think the coaches in the anonymous voting basically said, we don't like you. We, we don't. I remember Mike Leach telling me in 2018 he beat Mario Cristobal's team in Pullman. And after the game, I said to Leach, nice job. And he said, you know, I beat him with, with uh, my guys. Imagine if I had his guys, what I would have done to him. Uh, I think it's really interesting. And I'll be curious when the Coach of the Year balloting comes out this year. I'm told by the Pac-12 that they gave the ballots to the coaches last night. They are not due until the Monday after the, the uh, championship game on December 2nd. So they're not due till the 5th of December. But I'm curious to see how the Pac-12 coaches will treat Lincoln Riley at USC. Remember, USC is leaving the Pac-12 conference in 2024. Lincoln Riley uh, took players from Stanford and Colorado and from Oregon, Travis Dye. And I think the coaching staffs at those places and other places probably view him as a poacher. Uh, He used the transfer portal, and he brought guys from their campuses to his. Uh, There's probably going to be a lot of prevailing sentiment that Lincoln Riley has better players. Uh, And I find it interesting that coaches talk so much about recruiting being part of their job, but they are very reluctant to give credit to people they recruit against who are good at it. So it'll be really interesting to see if Lincoln Riley registers at all in the Pac-12 Coach of the Year uh, awards despite locking down a spot in Las Vegas earlier than anyone. And, you know, doing it in his first year. So I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to see, like, how do the coaches view Lincoln Riley? And then how do they view Dan Lanning, Mario Cristobal's replacement? Do they view him as a guy that has come in and done a great job in his first season as a first-year head coach, young guy? Or do they look at Dan Lanning and go, you know what, he inherited the Oregon machine, the uh, the uh, support of Nike and Phil Knight and Mario Cristobal's recruits? And, you know, do they look at Dan Lanning – through that prism, or do they give him more credit? I think he's been far more willing to spread the praise around and give credit where it's due. Uh, You know, Mario Cristobal has spent a lot of time celebrating after wins and saying, you know, that's what's wrong with college football. They are what's wrong with college football. And I think that chapped people over time. But I kind of wonder how the coaches will view Dan Lanning, how they will view, uh, you know, obviously Lincoln Riley. Uh, I don't think Kyle Whittingham is going to be in the running this year for Coach of the Year unless they get to Vegas and win the damn thing. Uh, Then I think all of a sudden he is a candidate. But Kalen DeBoer and Jonathan Smith, I think, are going to get some consideration and probably get some votes because they sort of fall in behind Dan Lanning at Oregon, who may be viewed as the guy who just took over Mario Cristobal's program, and and then Lincoln Riley at USC, who I think is not going to get a lot of votes just by virtue of the fact that he's at USC. Uh, And then I used to think they should make the – anonymous vote public i used to be a big fan of that like let's make it public let's see who these guys are voting for because you can't vote for yourself and you can't vote for your own players so david shaw cannot go i think david shaw did the best job and i think all the stanford players are the best players but what he can do is he can lean over to kyle whittingham he's friends with kyle whittingham or chip kelly and go hey you know what uh we can't make lincoln riley coach of the year you know if not for not after what usc is doing and they can decide, hey, they're going to vote for someone else. I'm curious to see how this will play. And I'm actually now a, a proponent of the idea that it should be anonymous because I don't want them to be self-conscious when they're casting the vote. I want to know what they really think of each other. I want to know where they really stand. 
I put out a poll yesterday, who should be Coach of the Year? If you have to cast your vote today, it's still up on my Twitter feed, at John Canzano BFT there. Up next, we're going to talk about the Civil War, and we're going to make our picks for the weekend. you got the bald-faced truth on this great Wednesday, Thanksgiving week, so much more ahead. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I have a lot to be thankful for. One of the things I'm thankful for is the, are the platforms that I have. I mean, took a took a big uh, took a big leap this year. In March, went out on my own, went rogue, uh, started my own writing endeavor. Just kind of felt I was at the time and place where I wanted to uh, be in a one-on-one conversation with you. Uh, as far as my writing went, I already have that in radio right here in the platform across the state. And so uh, launched johnconzano.com. It has been a huge success. My wife told me from day one, she said, this is going to be great. It's not just going to be good. It's going to be great. You're going to be in this regular conversation with your own readers. You're going to get to write unencumbered and write about the things you want to write about and not have to uh, you know, be sent here or be sent there. You can just go where the story is and tell the stories that you want to tell. And johnconzano.com got launched. I'm grateful for that and the support I have there and all the readers that are reading and, uh, and uh, interacting with me on a daily basis. So I'm uh, thankful for you. I'm also thankful for this radio show and the platform on uh, your, what is year, I think, 17 that I've been on air. I really... Um, I'm really humbled by it, and I meet lots of listeners all the time, and I appreciate you, and I'm giving you a virtual fist bump right now, and I can always tell my uh, my listener when I meet you somewhere, and I can just see you, and you come over, and you raise the fist bump, we fist bump, few words are said, and uh, I go, yep, that's one of my that's one of my people, that's one of the BFT Army, so I appreciate you being out there. I said yesterday, I appreciate Stephen and Peter and Judah and all the interns and producers and associate producers over the years that we've had, Alabama Adriana, uh, Kiki the Exotic Dancer, John Strong, the voice of American soccer, now on Fox calling World Cup games, got his start on this very radio show. So, so many people over the years, Chop, Fletch, everybody who's been a part of it, Cadillac Chris Brown, so many people that I'm forgetting, Bobby Bean, Gliss, uh, so many people that have been part of this show over the years. I'm just I'm thankful for everybody who's given their sweat and their time, and their energy, and their uh, their ideas to this radio show to make it what it is. So I appreciate you, and I'm thankful for you as a listener. Uh, guys, let's pivot right into our picks in the Pac-12 conference. Uh, let's start with the game that will be taking place on Friday early. Noon start. This is Friday. Arizona State at Arizona. Territorial Cup. No controversy over that name. Uh, ASU is one five straight games in this series but I think they're focused on a new coach now and uh, Arizona's got some uh, got some momentum with Jed Fish I like Arizona they're favored by four points I think they cover it I have it 34-24 Arizona over ASU yeah I agree with you Arizona has the one I would say above average unit and that's the Arizona offense I think they're going to be cooking after the uh, disappointment they had last week against Washington State I'm going to take Arizona and lay the points yeah, I'm right there with you. Uh, they cover, I mean, both teams not that great. It's always hard for me to pick. I'm going to say 38-31 Arizona. Cal and UCLA, Friday, one thirty on Fox. This game's got some implications because if Cal upsets UCLA, it opens a path for Washington 
to get to the conference championship game. It's one of the things they need to have happen. The others, they need to win the Apple Cup themselves, and they would need Oregon State to beat Oregon. But this is one of the little uh, tie-breaking things that could happen in Washington's favor. So Washington fans are going to be tuned in 1.30 on Friday on Fox as UCLA goes to Cal. Um, I don't know what Cal's playing for. I don't know what UCLA's playing for, and that's a problem in a game like this because UCLA, their season's pretty much over. They lost to USC last week. They're not going to be in the playoff. They're not going to be in New Year's Six Bowl. They're likely going to a marginal bowl game. Maybe they go to the Alamo Bowl. Maybe they go to the Holiday Bowl. Maybe they go to the Vegas Bowl. But I just kind of wonder about Dorian Thompson-Robinson. Will he play in this game? Will they go all in? Uh, I assume he's going to play. But you've seen quarterbacks who are going to be heading to the draft kind of shut it down early sometimes. I, I keep waiting for a quarterback to go, you know what, I'm not playing in the season finale because it doesn't mean anything. Or does he play a half a game in this one? So I don't know what I'm to expect from UCLA. If Cal were a little better on offense, I would look at this as a trap game for UCLA. But they're not. UCLA's a 10-point favorite. I think they cover. I have it now 35-21. I think they cover. But I'm, uh, I think they're going to be a little soft in winning this one. We're on opposite sides on this one. I like Cal plus the points. I think there is a chance Cal wins this game. I think you touched on it. What, you know, what does UCLA have to play with? I know Cal doesn't have a lot to play for either. Uh, but you know, Justin Wilcox as an underdog, that's the spot you want him in. I think Cal covers this game. I do think UCLA ends up winning, which hurts Washington. Washington needs Cal to win. But I think Cal covers the 10. I think Chip Kelly's going to have UCLA finishing strong regardless of what they have to play for. Uh, I do have them covering the spread, UCLA, but only by a little bit. I've got it uh, 28-17, and the only question I have is DTR. That's the only reason I don't think they win by more. Oregon, Oregon State, early game Saturday, 12-30. This one's for all the marbles in the state of Oregon, the, the Civil War football game. Oregon State's defense has been lights out. I said this yesterday. I reeled off how they've been you know, in the last four or five games. They've been great. Uh, Reacher Stadium's a huge advantage for the Beavers. I think Oregon's going to score about 24 to 27 points in this game. That's where I have them slotted. And I think Oregon State can get to 28. So I have it 28-27 Oregon State. It feels like a coin toss outcome for me. And so much of this is going to be incumbent upon Bo Nix in that foot. How healthy is he? Did he get better? Is he a running threat? If the answers uh, to that last question is no then I think Oregon State is going to win this game. And so I'm picking Oregon State and Damian Martinez to beat the Ducks 28-27. Yeah, that's the big mystery. Is Bo Nix going to run a little more than last game? Because he had the one run, and that was about it. Uh, I'm going to take Oregon to lay the points. I said yesterday I was leaning Beavs. I'm even leaning Ducks now. I think the Ducks win by a touchdown. I think Bo Nix is going to be a little healthier, and they're going to show it early. They're going to have a run or two early in the game to get Bo Nix and just put that in the back of the Beavers' minds, like, okay, he can maybe run a few more times than he did last week. I think he's going to open up the offense just enough. I like the Ducks to win by a touchdown. Yeah, uh, Bo Nix, I think you're, you hit it right on the head. He's going to be another week healthier. Obviously not, you know, be running around like he was, say, three, four weeks ago. But uh, Jane Grant, Jack Coletto, a handful of other Beavers, uh, banged up to various degrees. I've got it Oregon 31, Beavers 28. I'm seeing it as Oregon minus three. If you got it at three and a half, though, technically that is Oregon State covering. There you go. Uh, I'm seeing it at three and a half, three, three and a half. I think Oregon State wins the game outright. Uh, let's go to Utah and Colorado. One o'clock Saturday, Pac-12 Networks. Uh, Colorado has been a, a huge underdog in a bunch of games. They have failed to cover it. I'm finally getting off that bandwagon. I'll take Utah 42, Colorado 10. I, that means they cover the 29 and a half point spread. 
Yeah, I'm with you on that one, John. Uh, I was with you. I had Colorado the last few weeks. I'm off them now. You know, I think I think Utah could play anybody in this game, and they're going to cover. I have no faith um, in Colorado. I think Utah wins and covers. Yeah, without a doubt, 49 to 10, Utah is going to handle Colorado. Notre Dame, USC, 4:30 Saturday, ABC. Um, you know, Lincoln Riley, Caleb Williams. I said it earlier. I didn't. Want, I don't want to like these guys, but. They're playing well, and I don't think Notre Dame will be able to match the offense. I've softened a little bit. I had this as a bigger spread earlier. USC, five-and-a-half-point favorite. At least that's where it was yesterday. Uh, I have USC covering the five-and-a-half, winning 35-27. A little closer than I had it yesterday, but I think USC wins. I think Notre Dame covers this game. I think USC wins, but Notre Dame keeps it close. Uh, Notre Dame has a double-digit favorite this year, 1-5 against the spread. But if they're a touchdown favorite or an underdog, 4-0 against the spread, 4-0 outright. This is the spot you want Notre Dame. You want Marcus Freeman as an underdog. I think he covers this game, but USC wins by field goal. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm leaning as well. Notre Dame, I mean, such a bad start to the season, but they've really come on of late. I've got USC winning, but 34-31 the final. Washington, Washington State, the late game. Now, the Huskies need a victory by Oregon State. And either a win from Colorado over Utah or Cal over UCLA for this game to mean something for them, you know, Vegas-wise. So keep an eye on the earlier games, and you'll know whether or not Washington has a lot to play for or just something to play for. Um, You know, the Huskies still could be playing for a possible invitation to a New Year's Six bowl game, given their ranking, or they could be playing just for pride. But it'll mean a lot more if Colorado upsets Utah, not likely, or Cal upsets UCLA. You guys seem to think that might happen. Uh, but if, if Oregon State beats Oregon and Cal beats UCLA, the Washington Huskies may show up motivated in Pullman, very motivated. But the temperature is supposed to be a mixture of rain and snow. The lows will be at or below freezing. So the apple freeze is what we're calling this thing. And I like Washington State just a little better. And, and I'm also thinking, I don't think it's likely that Cal beats UCLA. And I think Washington will know that by the time the game kicks off. And so I'm going to take Washington State here, but I don't feel great about it. Washington State 30, Washington 28. I agree with you. I don't feel great about it, but I like the Cougs in this one. You know, Even if it is where Washington has a chance to get to the Pac-12 title game, that's a perfect spot for Pullman to go absolutely insane and just ruin Washington's chances. I think the Washington State offense has been better. The defense is pretty solid. And that cold weather... Uh, Michael Penix, we saw against Oregon State when it was bad weather. He struggled a little bit, just wasn't as you know sharp as he's been all season long. I think that happens again on Saturday. I like the Cougs in the game. Yeah, see, I'm going the other way. And, and Penix did struggle in the weather, but, man, the last three minutes of that game, he was lights out. He dug down. He showed some grit. And I know the Huskies might not be playing for as much as they hoped, but they're still going for a 10-win season. Uh, I've got it 28-24 Washington. It'll be fun to watch. I think the two coin flips in my book, I think the Civil War game is a coin toss. I think the Washington-Washington State game is a coin toss. I feel good about Arizona over Arizona State. I feel good about UCLA, not great, over Cal. I feel great about Utah over Colorado. And uh, I feel pretty good about USC beating Notre Dame. I think they have too much offense. But that's where I stand. You can read it all at johnconzano.com if you want to check out more analysis of it. But next we're going to go to Jerry Palm. He's in the Midwest. He's in Big Ten country. I'm going to ask him about Michigan, Ohio State. Plus, he's got some bowl projections. He is the guy when it comes to analytics and the formula, when it comes to 
ratings in the college football playoff. And Jerry Palm's going to tell us what happens with the playoff ranking and who's going to what bowl games. He's coming up next. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with the pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. I'm thankful for college football fans. I'm gonna every segment I'm gonna start by saying what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for college football fans who have shown up in force, who read, who listen, who call, who root for their teams. Uh, I think you make it more fun. I walk through the tailgate at the stadium and I see you out there and I'm like, man, they look like they're having a lot of fun. Uh, I appreciate you and I'm thankful that you're out there. I'm also thankful for Jerry Palm, my old friend at CBS Sports. Great follow. JP Palm CBS on Twitter. Uh, he's joining us now. He's the guy. He is the uh, analytics guru. I, I call him my data head friend. And he's joining us now. Uh, but your background—correct me if I'm wrong. Your, your background is—is is in—is it in programming or what is it? What is your yeah, major? My degree is in computer science. Yeah, yeah, Com- computer so science. I'm a writer. Yeah. You and I never would have bumped into each other on a college campus. Like I would have been oh, over. I bumped, I, yeah, there's no question <laughs> that we would not. We probably would not have, uh, especially a campus the size of Purdue. <laughs> but but isn't it neat? Isn't it neat how like sports? brought us together jerry and we've become friends like you know that's that's kind of the beauty and the glue of sport yeah i agree it's uh it's, it's funny i changed careers officially in 2002 um and i you know some of my best friends are sports writers now it's uh it's funny how that worked jerry palm is with us he calls himself the resident sports geek at cbs sports but he is looking a lot at the bowl predictions and what is going on. You published something uh, three hours ago where you kind of looked at the picks, Ohio State, Michigan, and, and other things. But let's start Let's start with something like that. When you see a game like Ohio State, Michigan, I texted you this morning. I said, who do you like? I just wanted to know who you like because you see those teams more frequently than me. Right. Who do you like in that matchup? I like Ohio State because of just the dazzling array of talent they have, especially on the offensive side of the ball. But the thing about this game is it's a complete contrast in style. I mean, Ohio State wants to run up and down the field. Uh, offensively, they're so explosive. Uh, and you can see it in the Penn State game. Like, Penn State had them down for three and a half quarters, and they get two touchdowns in 37 seconds. It's just that's, that's what they can do. So they're never out of the game. Michigan likes to bludgeon you. They're going to pound the ball on the ground. Uh, with their offense, they're going to come after you on defense. They're one of the top defenses in the country. So it's really going to come down to which other, which of these teams can assert their will on the other. Um, but I like Ohio State, especially playing at home uh, in front of that crowd, uh, with the ability to be able to do that, to, to take advantage of, of the Michigan defense and, and get their receivers downfield and get some get a lot of points in this game. When you, when I, if I asked you the question – you know, which fan base or which team does this game mean more to? Can you answer that definitively, or is it just kind of like, oh, they hate each other, it's a rivalry? Is there is there one fan yeah. base that maybe it means more to? I, I would say at the moment, Michigan, because they've had so little success. But they did finally get the win last year. But over the last, oh, dozen or so years, it's really been Ohio State. And, and just to give you an idea, can you name the team – over the last 20 years, that has the most wins over Ohio State. 
Mm. Not Michigan. It's Purdue. <laughs> Purdue had five that. wins in 20 years over Ohio State. Michigan's got four. Penn State's got four. Going back to 2002. So, yeah, but, but Purdue doesn't play them every year. Purdue's played them 13 times in those 20 years. Michigan plays them every year. They've got four wins. So this one means more to Michigan fans because they've had so little success against Ohio State for quite some time. Jerry, you're really good at crunching the numbers and trying to determine what the NCAA selection committee is going to do or the college football playoff committee is going to do. What did you think of this week's rankings? What are are they trying to tell us? Well, I don't know that they're sending a message. I mean, that's a lot of times you know, people think, well, they're, they're sending a message. They're not really sending a message. They're just trying to evaluate these teams at this point in time. I thought USC would jump LSU this week. I have no doubt they jump LSU next week, assuming USC beats Notre Dame. Uh, that's, I, that's an inevitability. The only way LSU finishes the season ahead of USC is if USC loses or LSU beats Georgia. And then, you know, LSU beats Georgia. You know, they're a playoff team. They're uh they get they get all the feathers in their cap. That's a, that's the the win that nobody's come close to getting really this year, except of all teams in Missouri. Um, but you know, it's I think SC is, is in a really good position now. Um, the committee is obviously warmed up to them. Uh, they got their first big win of the season against UCLA. They get another shot with Notre Dame this week. They're Pac-12 championship game. USC is in a position where they can get their top three wins of the season right at the end. And they'll all be real good wins. So, you know, it's it's a chance for USC to put themselves in a good position to make the college football playoff. Twelve and one USC has got a strong case to be included. It's not definite, but they have a strong case. It looks like you know one either Ohio State or Michigan will get knocked out. Is there a scenario in which you see both of them could be in the top four? It's hard because. There's a strength of schedule problem for both of them, but especially Michigan, because Ohio State played Notre Dame outside the league, but Michigan's non-conference schedule was terrible. And then the league schedule is terrible. They each got Penn State because they're in the division, and they both beat Penn State, so that's good, and that's the one quality win that they each have. Um, And then Ohio State, like I said, has Notre Dame. But if you take a loss now and you're 11-1, and you know, you're, you're competing with USC, who's going to pick up three ranked wins at the end of the season at 12-1, and one, if that's what happens. You know, and teams that would have both beaten Notre Dame. Uh, you've got SEC teams there. You've got maybe an undefeated TCU. I think, I, I think 11-1 Ohio State, and especially Michigan, would need some help because of the gap between Penn State, the third-best team in the Big Ten, and the rest of the league. And it's a huge gap. I mean, it's such a big gap that we might see an Iowa team that couldn't score more than like seven points a game for two months play for the championship hmm. of that league. And they'll be 30 point underdogs and take the favorite. I mean, it's, it's just a disaster in terms of the upper quality level teams in the big 10. And it's hurting Ohio state and Michigan, their chances to get into the playoff at 11 and one. How much of a nightmare is it for USC and everybody else, if LSU beats Georgia, because that puts two SEC teams in, in my opinion. Yep. That's no question. LSU's in, Georgia's still in, and now you've got 
possibly undefeated Ohio State or Michigan, possibly undefeated TCU, and everybody else is out. That's, that's all there is. You know, it's the four-team tournament. There won't be room for anyone else. They're not leaving out an undefeated major conference team. So it's, uh, yeah, that LSU beating Georgia, a very unlikely event, but, you know, they're going to play the game, so anything can happen. Um, but that, that turns everything on its head for everybody else. If you've got a loss at this point, you're all but doomed unless someone else were to take a loss, like TCU, most likely. The playoff as you see it, who are your four playoff teams uh, if you're projecting it today? Well, the, my current projection for the end of the season is uh, Georgia, Ohio State, TCU, and USC, uh, one, one through four. Um, that obviously means Georgia beats LSU and knocks them out. Michigan doesn't qualify at 11-1 and one, uh, because USC's resume is too strong at 12-1. and one. And then what does that do in your mind to the New Year's Six Bulls? Because I have a lot of Pac-12 fans going, you know, uh, if USC makes the playoff, is, that, uh, is there a possibility the Pac-12 could do better than just the Rose Bowl? I don't think so, but what do you see? No. No. Uh, no, don't put a team in the Rose Bowl. Um, most likely the runner-up, uh, whoever loses to USC, would probably be the Rose Bowl team. But it will be the highest-ranked Pac-12 team uh, after USC if they're in the playoff. And then that'll be it. Uh, there won't be another Pac-12 team getting in unless there are some upsets to clear a path for them, like you know Penn State losing to Michigan State, things like that. Um, but it looks like you could see four SEC teams in the New Year's Six because you've got four in the top the ten at the moment, but they've got two contracted positions. They've got the Sugar Bowl and they've got the Orange Bowl, possibly, that's shared with the Big Ten. So the if you have Georgia in the playoffs, then LSU and Alabama are going to go to the Sugar and the Orange because the Orange gets the highest-rated team from the SEC, Big Ten, or Notre Dame as the opponent for the ACC champion. And that's going to be one of those SEC teams because Penn State's not going to get high enough in the rankings. And then, um, and then you've got a spot in the Cotton Bowl for the highest-rated team left after the other five games are filled, and that's probably Tennessee the way the rankings are now. So... You know, it, it, it's not going to be room for the Pac-12 or the ACC or the Big Ten or anybody else because you might have four SEC teams in among those 12 spots for those games. I have uh, a lot of Washington fans who want to know what happens in a scenario where, uh, say, uh, or Oregon State beats Oregon, but um, Oregon ends up playing in the Pac-12 championship game. Let's say they back into the game under the tie-breaking formula, and then they get beat by USC, and Washington uh, wins the Apple Cup, uh, at that point, you'd have a 10-win Washington team, and you'd have an Oregon team that was, you know, kind of sputtering at the end of the season with two losses. 7-3. Is yeah. Is it possible that the Rose Bowl would go to their cluster formula and bypass the runner-up, Oregon, and, uh, or maybe it could be Utah in another scenario, and reach down and grab Washington. They will not pass up a team in the rankings. The, the Rose Bowl will take the highest-rated Pac-12 team after the championship game if USC is in the playoff. So, they'll t I mean, they'll take the champion if they're not in the playoff. Yeah. But whoever happens to be higher ranked, so if Oregon loses to Oregon State and Washington jumps them in the rankings, then there's a good chance it's Washington, even if Oregon plays for the Pac-12 title. They're they're not committed to taking the runner-up of the championship game 
in fact, the, the Rose Bowl actually can choose whoever they want. Yeah. But the the odd that nobody has the, the Rose and the Sugar and these bowls that have to replace teams, they can choose whoever they want. None of them have ever passed up the highest rated team available. Jerry Palm, you're the best. Uh, give us uh, Thanksgiving. What are you thankful for? I got all four of my kids in the house, which is uh, a rare treat because one of them is, you know, 25 and living away from home, so we don't get to see him as much. But uh, I got all four kids in the house uh, for a couple of days, so we're excited about that. Did they all play in the band, or how many of your kids played in the marching band? Uh, they all marched high school band. The, the three boys marched four years of high school band. Uh, the oldest gave it up after high school. Uh, the My second oldest marched one year at Purdue. My third oldest just finished his freshman year in Purdue band. Uh, my daughter gave it up, band up after her freshman year of high school. But band family is <laughs> is a real thing for us. My son, who's in the band now, is the sixth member of my family to march in the Purdue band. I love that. And you got you got to go out there. Uh, at homecoming this year and be on the yeah. field with your your yeah. kid you did this yeah. five years ago with his brother that it must have been really cool yeah. to be on the field uh, in uniform marching yeah unbelievable i mean we weren't close to each other on the field but that didn't really matter it was just you know the shared experience was um something you never forget a lot of people, when they're in the stadium, the band will be playing, and they'll kind of go, this is a good time to go and get something to drink, or, you know, they're talking. I've watched Jerry Palm for years. He shows up in the press box, and, and when the bands come on the field, what do you do? You are locked onto the field. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Uh, if, if I can get down to where I can, where I'm not, the press box kind of mutes the sound. So if I can get down, you know, to the stands and watch it from there, I'll watch it from there. But, um, but yes, I'm the, if I'm in a press box and I can't get to the field, I'm the only one in the press box paying attention to the game. <laughs> Jerry Palm, hey, I wish you a happy Thanksgiving. You and your family enjoy those kids. Yep, yep same to you. All right, there he is, laying it out for us. Ohio State, Michigan. I lean uh, Ohio State as well. Steven, you got to lean on Ohio State, Michigan? Yeah, I'm, I lean to Ohio State in that one. I think uh, Michigan, especially with the Blake Corum, he got hurt. He came back and rushed once, but I'm not sure about his health. Yeah, Ohio State with a win. Yeah, and I saw, uh, I believe Ohio State beat Penn State at Penn State. I liked that win better than Michigan's win at home. Uh, so keep an eye on that game. But uh, for people who are hoping that the Pac-12 would get two New Year's Six Bowls, and that would be, uh, that would matter for not only the two teams that get to go, it would matter for the progression of Pac-12 bowl games. So I have a lot of Oregon State fans going, hey, could we move up to a Vegas Bowl? Could we move up to a Holiday Bowl in that scenario? Um, you're going to have to hold out hope for some chaos, but you also want to see USC make the playoff, and that way somebody else goes to the Rose Bowl, and that way somebody else goes you know, to the Holiday Bowl, the Alamo Bowl, the Vegas Bowl, and so you start seeing teams that were slotted maybe for the Sun Bowl start to move up in the rankings. Keep an eye on that, and certainly if you're an Oregon State fan, an Oregon fan, you, you want to win as many games as you possibly can, and the path to the Rose Bowl is there for the Oregon Ducks in Dan Lanning's first season. He's got to beat Oregon State, then uh, very likely would need to go to Vegas and either win that game or be in it in a way that was impressive enough to keep Oregon ahead of Washington and Utah in the final college football playoff rankings so that the Rose Bowl would have an easy decision to make there and take the Ducks anyway. Uh, I know a lot of Washington fans are hoping that Oregon backs into that game, gets kicked down in the rankings, 
and uh, Washington ends up at the end of the rainbow, uh, you know, having something big to play for on Saturday night in Pullman. So I think they'll channel that, of course. But uh, Jerry, as Jerry Palm pointed out, very unlikely to see two Pac-12 teams in the New York Six. It's probably going to be USC if they can get into the playoff, and then whoever else gets to go to the Rose. Uh, if USC misses the playoff, uh, they're probably headed uh, to a Rose Bowl or worse, uh, depending on how the championship game goes for them. I want you to leave it here. Our big splash is coming up. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach in the 5 o'clock hour. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Tell you something I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for people who are courteous. You know who you are. You're a courteous person. If you put the uh, shopping cart back in the cart corral, if you, uh, when all things are equal, wave the other person on in traffic, or if uh, someone lets you in in traffic, you give them a wave, or you let someone else in in traffic, and or you hold a door for somebody, or you give up your seat, or you're just generally thinking about more than yourself. Uh, I'm thankful for you. I just want to say that. Uh, let's go to our big splash. It's the one thing you need to know today. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Well, seven Michigan State football players are now being charged with crimes stemming from the assault on two Wolverines players in Michigan Stadium's tunnel after the teams played on October 29th. Defensive back uh, Kerry Crump is being charged with felonious assault after a video was released showing him striking Michigan defensive back Jamon Green with his helmet. Uh, a defensive end, Jacoby Winman, was also shown in the video and is charged with assault and battery. Um, the video showed a mass of players uh, surrounding Michigan defensive back Jaden McBurrows hitting him and kicking him while he was on the ground. Michigan State initially suspended four players and then added uh, four more players after the video evidence was released. Uh, Michigan uh, is uh, saying that they appreciate the thoughtful and deliberate approach from the prosecutor's office. Michigan State's interim president said that the school would continue to evaluate this matter. Um, the universities, by the way, um, are rivals. And this is one of these examples. Like I just I don't understand it. I understand a rivalry. I understand that like Dodger fans and Giant fans don't have to love each other, but I've never understood the violence that comes with it, like the parking lot beatings that you see that are part of rivalries, the stadium tunnel stuff. If you are that fired up about something that's going on with your sports team, and I'm talking about fans now, I'll get back to the players in a second. If you're fired up enough to raise fists or throw a bottle or say, let's jump that person or knock someone out because they're wearing a different jersey, you might want to reevaluate or evaluate your state of mind. You may want to evaluate, uh, you know, what else is going on in your life or with you personally. Like, I've never understood it. I've never understood when we see these videos that go viral about people fighting in stadiums or punching each other at the urinal in the NFL stadiums or whatever it is that is happening at stadiums. And I don't understand the beating that happened in this tunnel. I'm glad that prosecutors are taking it seriously. I don't want to see, like, prosecutors get involved with sports. Like, anything that happens on the field, you know, even the Garrett Blunt handshake punch thing, I was, you know, I was disappointed with that. 
Like, you can't have that happening. You can't have that be part of the game. It's not a game when that's happening. I don't want players to have to worry about getting beat up in the tunnel of a rivalry game. You really hate each other that much? Like, it's a game. You're on opposing teams. This isn't like gang warfare with you wearing different colors just because you're in different uniforms. It is a sport. It isn't supposed to be life or death, and nobody's supposed to end up prosecuted at the end of it. Uh, Michigan State, seven Spartans players now charged in the tunnel fight. It's not even a fight. I mean, they more or less just jumped the players. I hate when people say that. It's a fight. No, it wasn't a fight. It wasn't a fight at the end of the game when LeGarrette Blunt punched the guy. He, he cold-cocked him. It's not a fight when somebody gets jumped. It's, you know, it's it's an incident. It's an altercation. It's a jumping. It's, you know, whatever. But I'm glad that prosecutors are involved, but I'm also sad that they're involved. Like, guys, what do you think this is about? Let's let's go to the stadium stuff. What do you think it's about when, because we have a rivalry game coming up in our state at Research Stadium. I don't want to see any Beaver fan taking a shot at a Duck fan at the game. Like, I think it's okay to go into the stadium and be all right with somebody wearing the opposing jersey being in there at the stadium. I agree with you. It should be okay, right? Like, in theory, it should be okay. I don't know what exactly it is. Um, just, you know, whether it's you just bleed and love that team so much or it's the booze or whatever it is in the stadium. Like, people get crazy and they start to think that it is not going to happen. Like, it's not real life, right? Like, nothing bad is going to happen to you when you're at a game like that and they just go crazy. I don't know, man. It's just, you, it's weird. You hit it on the head. It's the alcohol. And people can't handle it and they ruin it for everybody. I just, I, is, it, is it just alcohol, though? Because I see people who drink. Is it people who can't handle their alcohol? Yes, yes. It's it's people who are already prone to making poor decisions, making a poor decision that leads to a worse decision. So if you're that person, don't drink at the stadium. Or just go into it with a mindset of, like, look, you know, have a drink, but it's supposed to be a festive event, for crying out loud. B. FFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I just want to finish my thought from the last segment. We've just seen over the years a lot of altercations, giant Dodger fan altercations. There was an incident. I think it was last year where a giant fan at Dodger Stadium got jumped, got knocked out, hospitalized. I used to, I've been to giant Dodger games. I, I've just never seen it as, you know, keep your head on a swivel. And we're, we're in that era of sports in, in some ways. And maybe I'm just being triggered by the whole incident that happened with the Michigan, Michigan State players. And we're talking about prosecutors. And I hate to see that prosecutors are wasting their time with college football teams trying to figure out like how they police them when they should probably be focused on the things they you know they need to be focused on we should leave them to do their jobs but we give them no choice when we've got players in the tunnel jumping other players i like you know i have prosecutor friends i want my prosecutor friends working on the stuff that they should be working on i don't want them involved with having to uh adjudicate beaver and duck fan violence that could potentially happen at Racer Stadium. And I'm telling you, like, you know, I've heard over the years, like, I've done this for a long time, and and in 25 or 30 years of covering college events, 
in sporting events, I have over the years heard, you know, this fan base, fill in the blank, is terrific. I went down to one of their games. Uh, I walked through the parking lot, and I was wearing my team's jersey or T-shirt, and I was treated warmly by people who, you know, they may have there may have been some good-natured ribbing, but you know they were offering them, uh, you know, hey, hey, have a have a hot dog at the tailgate. Here's a beer. Hang out with us. Play some cornhole. And man, I felt welcome. I've heard that over the years, especially when uh, in the early part of the year when I go to cover games like Georgia playing at Oregon, or Oregon State playing Louisville or LSU or other teams they played over the years. Like I, I will walk around a little bit and kind of see the hospitality that's on display, and I'm often impressed with other fan bases. I, I wonder how the Oregon and Oregon State fan bases and the Pac-12 fan bases treat opposing fans. Do they treat them well? Do you go out of your way to welcome them? Do you, go, do you view yourself as an ambassador and a representative of the university and the football program? You should, because I'll tell you what happens. It's no different than some celebrity being on an airplane who's going, you know what? Somebody comes up to me, I'm going to be nice to him because that person's going to tell 10 other people and you know everybody's watching because you're a celebrity. Uh, and, and so I think you as a football fan have to understand the role you play in the image of your own program, your fan base. And we see it all the time when, when and usually when things go awry, you know, the coach will grab the microphone at a basketball game and say, hey, we don't do that here. Stop throwing stuff. We don't treat opposing players that way. I've seen that stuff. But I'm here as a public service announcement in front of this rivalry game at Research Stadium. I think the vast majority of Beaver fans and Duck fans go into these rivalry games going, I really want my team to win. I really want to have a good time. You shouldn't go in going, I am like hunting for the opposing team's fans, or I'm going to go into that stadium and cause a problem and be an idiot. Uh, wearing opposing colors and cause an incident, looking for trouble, so to speak. So what I want to see happen in this game, like I want, I think it's going to be a great game. I think, in, in a, you know, I told, I told Oregon coach Dan Lanning this last night. I told him, I'm going to share this with you, and I don't think he'd mind me sharing what I said last night. Um, I, I told him I feel like with Dan Lanning at Oregon and Jonathan Smith at Oregon State, I feel like the programs right now are in the hands of coaches who know what they're doing, and I cannot wait to see what Landing does with the Oregon program in the next five or six years, and I cannot—I am so interested in what Jonathan Smith is going to do in the next five or six years. And these two guys, I think, have, the ch- have a chance to be a better one-two punch than any one-two punch in Oregon-Oregon State history that includes – the Rich Brooks era, where you looked over at Oregon State and you weren't sure you were gonna, what you were going to get. And it includes the Mike Riley era at Oregon State, where you looked over at Oregon and, man, there was Chip Mike Bilotti and then Chip Kelly. I think this could be better than that. I think Bilotti and, and then Chip Kelly and Mike Riley, really the Chip Kelly-Mike Riley era of about 2008-2009, may have been the height where we had both programs – in position in a given year to compete for a Rose Bowl. That was probably the peak when you talk about the one-two punch. I think right now we're on the cusp of it with Jonathan Smith at Oregon State knocking on the door for nine wins and Dan Lanning 
trying to get win number 10. We're right there. Like one of these guys has a chance on Saturday to win his way into the conference championship game. And the other guy, what is he going to do next year? Because Jonathan Smith told us on Pac-12 Media Day, I want to go to Vegas. I, it sounded ridiculous. Steven, you were there when he said it. It sounded ridiculous, a little bit ridiculous. And now, like, I really believe they could get to the conference championship next season. They could get to Vegas, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're playing Oregon. Yeah, I couldn't believe he said it. You know, not many people are going to go out and say, we, we think we should win. He said we should think we should win every game because of our talent. Not because, you know, just of luck. Like, he thinks that they are as talented as any team in the conference, and they've proven out to be that this season. And moving forward, look, they got a freshman quarterback, Bill Branson, freshman running back, Damian Martinez. It's only going to get better from this point on. So, like, this could be, you know, and with USC, USC, UCLA leaving the conference, Oregon, Oregon State, they're going to be top four teams in the conference year in, year out, it seems like, for the next couple of years. And I think next year, I mean, it's not unthinkable to me. Like, I know it would sound ridiculous. Like, I think we could get a situation. We're not that far away this year. Had Oregon State beat USC instead of losing 17-14 at home, much different equation on Saturday's game. Like, uh, we'll be able to unwind it at the end of the season, but we could have potentially been looking at, you know, a, uh, uh, you know, a situation where Oregon and Oregon State could both, they could play a Civil War football game and then turn around and play a rematch in Vegas for the conference championship because there are no divisions anymore. So I think there's a real shot here that we're knocking on something special when it comes to these two guys. Uh, you know, what do you see? Which one of them has to do more work this offseason? I think it's Oregon State still. And the reason I say that is, I'm still not sold Uncle Branson of being the guy, um, you know, maybe try to find another quarterback in the transfer portal. Maybe not. He might be it. I don't know. I just think right now, Oregon State, uh, even if they get this win on Saturday, big win, obviously, but they still have a couple more steps they need to take. They need to win a game at Autzen Stadium because the last few that they've won have all been at Reese's Stadium. Can they win that humongous game on the road. They lost at Washington in a really big time game and then, you know, they haven't had another chance. So it'd have to go into next season. So I think Oregon State has a little more to build for, but I think they are really close. I also think that, you know, he's gonna lose some senior leadership this year. This team is one of the advantages I think that Oregon State has had is they have uh they have some guys like Jack Coletto who have been in the program. And they've got some players that, you know, have uh, like Jaden Grant, who have been there not just for four or five or six years, but who have been there a whole bunch of time. And so I think there's a real chance that, you know, you're looking at um, a Jonathan Smith program that may have to reload a little bit. But I like the fact that they got a freshman running back in Damian Martinez. They have to keep him. They have to use their collective. They have to keep him. They're going to have to focus on retention as they promised they would. He's got to find a quarterback. But all the questions we had about the defensive side of the ball, Trent Bray has answered some questions. Nobody's worried about Oregon State's defense, and that is a big difference than, from a year ago. Hey, John, I got a question for you. Do you think Trent Bray is the best coordinator in the Pac-12? I think that he should – like, it was really interesting because I was asking about Coach of the Year. I had uh, Nick Aliotti, who everyone knows. I don't think he'd be uh, embarrassed for me to say this. Uh, he texted me at the beginning of the show when I was talking about the coordinator, or the coaches of the year, and he says Trent Bray is my vote. Uh, you know, I, you know, he was only being half serious, but he, you know, it's true. Trent Bray has just done a fantastic job, and he's not, 
He's not a finalist for the Broyles Award. He should be. Um, you know, Kenny Dillingham at Oregon got in there, but it's probably because when you look at the finalists for the for the Broyles Award, it's all teams that are that were sniffing around the playoff. They want to give it to somebody who's in the playoff. It's meant to reward a high-profile assistant. But Trent Bray has given Jonathan Smith the defense that he needs to win. Now they need a quarterback, and I'll be really disappointed if Oregon State finds itself again piecemealing together quarterbacks next season. They got it. They have to. They have to find an answer there. Yeah, that matchup between Kenny Dillingham and Trent Bray as those coordinators, man, that is a good matchup between two young coaches that have really, you know, not. I don't know if they've overachieved, but they've done better than I think most of us thought they would. Yeah, and yesterday on the show, it was interesting because I, I felt like we got our best interview yet with Jack Coletto yesterday. And he was talking, you know, I was asking him about sort of the philosophy of Bray's defense and, you know, what, as a linebacker, I know when the linebackers are unblocked and they're making tackles that the big guys up front are doing a really good job of, uh, you know, causing disruption, uh, eating up double teams, eating up blockers at the point of attack, and they just leave, you know, whether it's Oregon or Oregon State. If Noah Sewell's running free, tackling guys with nobody, no guard, no tackle trying to block him, you know that Oregon's defensive tackles are doing a great job up front. The same goes for Oregon State. But Coletto said something. He goes, you know, the job of those guys up front is not just to uh, absorb a bunch of blockers. It's they are they are trying to defeat the blockers and cause disruption, and that – you know, as you watch Oregon State play, that's what Oregon State's defense has done really well is those guys up front have been very disruptive, and you find running backs who are looking for holes having to move laterally, having to move backwards, maybe having to sidestep somebody, and just that extra step gives that linebacker and that strong safety and everybody else an opportunity to come up and absolutely kill and blow up a running play. So um, Oregon State has been really good against the run. Oregon State defensive backs are very experienced. And the question becomes, will Jaden Grant play? Jaden Grant was out last week. Um, you know, he thinks he's going to be available this week. That's a key one for me. If you see number three out there in the secondary, then, you know, Oregon State's, you know, skating at full strength, so to speak. But I think it's a great matchup. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's Kenny Dillingham's got to MacGyver it. He did a great job MacGyvering it last week with Bo Nix. He's going to have to MacGyver it again against Oregon State. And you could feel in the second half, Oregon in the second half kind of ran out of answers. You know, Bo Nix couldn't run the ball. Utah was going, hey, he's just throwing short passes. So Utah came up, and the interception uh, that happened, uh, you know, in the second half was by virtue of the fact that, you know, that Utah was just not respecting anything beyond about 10 or 15 yards downfield. They were jumping everything, and and it it was evident to me that Oregon was reaching a little bit, and we all saw it. They ran the trick play. They bring in the backup quarterback, Ty Thompson. He's relatively you know inexperienced with as far as game action when, with the game on the line. Oregon's up a couple scores in the game, and so they feel comfortable. They bring him in, but I felt it was a mistake by Dillingham to run the trick play, and. You already had a guy who had who had shaky confidence, and now you're running a play that is not a normal football play. And and you know running backs and receivers who are taking pitches often are you know looking around, their eyes are up, they're not thinking what they're supposed to be, and so the ball ends up on the ground. Utah picks it up, 
gets an easy seven points. I thought that was a loss in a number of ways for Oregon because, first of all, it told me that they didn't feel like they could execute their regular offense and move the ball in that situation. They were trying to out-gimmick Utah, and they blew it. They botched the play. Second thing was um, he, they didn't trust Ty Thompson to run a normal football play. They had him run a gimmick play. And and I and I think it was a real risk with so much downside because of where they were on the field, the situation they were in. And, oh, by the way, it went south. And I watched Ty Thompson's body language and he went to the sideline. And he wasn't, like, visibly head down distraught over it. But I just didn't like the, the skip in his step as he was, you know, going to the sideline after giving up a seven-point score the other way. I just think it was a misfire. And I was like, what are they thinking in that situation? But I tell you what they were thinking. They were thinking, hey, we don't have anything else on offense. Like, we cannot line up because Utah was stuffing the run game then by then in the second half. Bo Nix wasn't able to get a whole bunch because of the way they were playing. And so all Oregon had was an occasional shot down the field or a trick play, and they were hanging on for dear life. They're going to have to have more than that this week. Bo Nix has got to be able to attack the line of scrimmage with his feet. If he can't do that, this is going to be a very low-scoring game. This game could be in the 20s and the low 20s. If Bo Nix can't run, Oregon can win a game 24-21. 21-20, Oregon can win that kind of game. 20-17, to 17, they did it last week. That's, again, going to be the kind of game they try to play if Bo Nix can't move. If he can move, it opens up some things, and then they have they force Oregon. You know, what you want to do is you want to force Oregon State's offense to have to throw the ball. You want to get them in a situation where they're trying to match you 7-for-7 seven seven because Oregon State doesn't want to play that way. Oregon State wants to control the ball. They want to choke you out on defense, and they want to keep this game, you know, 27-24, 24-21, that's the game they want to play. They don't want to play up in the 30s against Oregon. And so keep an eye kind of on the first half and how that goes. If this is like a 10-7 game late in the second quarter, it's the kind of game Oregon State wants to play. 14-10, 10-7, you know, 17-10 at halftime would be about as high as much as they want to see. Um, if it starts to get out of control a little bit with, you know, if it's if it's 21 20 at halftime, that's not Oregon State's game because it's not Ben Goldbrinson's game to go out and do that and, and try to score like that. So keep an eye on it. I think it's going to be a great game. But if you're an Oregon State fan, be hospitable. See a Duck fan. Thank them for being here. It's a Thanksgiving week. Thank them for coming to your stadium. And if you're a Duck fan and you're going into Research Stadium, don't act like an idiot. Act like a house guest because you are one. Leave it here. you got the BFT statewide. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I asked Anna as she popped into the studio. First of all, you came in and you were like, oh, it's so hot in here. It's like a sauna. Well. What are you doing? Because it's, it's rivalry week. Got to turn the heat up. How can you work in these? Conditions? I didn't notice. You, know, I didn't notice it was hot. I'm locked <laughs> You're in. You're like a, a frog being boiled. <laughs> I'm. Lo- they don't notice either <laughs> until you pass out from dehydration. It's like the turkey. <laughs> turkey is like, what's going on? It's getting warm in here. <laughs> a frog. Find you on the floor. What a happened? Frog being boiled. <laughs> That's yeah. That, that's not an image that would have come to my mind. <laughs> well, that's. I mean, they say that they say 
Uh, they say that's what happens, right? If you put them in water initially that's cooler, and then you gradually turn up the heat, supposedly they, they just, don't know they're being cooked. They don't know they're dying. I don't know. That's horrible. I, I guess. That, I guess you could. Horrible. You probably just feel better, you know, if you know that. <laughs> no, they're well aware, Anna. They're screaming. They're screaming the whole time the water's <laughs> boiling around them, but they they don't scream like people. So that's the only. I don't know. I've never boiled frogs in my life. So, for the record, oh, that's just not something I've done yet. For crying out yet. loud. Yet. Yet? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is this something that's... Do I know not know something about Thanksgiving that's about to happen? Yeah. We're going to have a French Thanksgiving. There you go. Do French people, or is it really a frog thing? That's their thing? Frogs frog and legs, snails and stuff? Yeah, right? They do frog that at Thanksgiving? No. I don't... They, the frog... I don't know. Do you think the French celebrate Thanksgiving? I don't know. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, was showing, I, I was locked in. When I was in elementary school, I wasn't thinking about history and world history. I was, I was looking at my lunch pail and the 28 NFL helmets that were on it at the time. <laughs> 28 helmets. The last time I checked, the French do not celebrate Do they have their version of Thanksgiving? Do we have a French person who's listening to the show that can confirm or deny? Peter, wow. do you know? Do the French have a version of Thanksgiving? I do not know. Well, I'm looking it up. Uh, you know, there's French-inspired Thanksgiving on Google. Uh-huh. So there you go. French-inspired Thanksgiving? Does Fr do, do they celebrate Thanksgiving in France? <laughs> no. Christmas, they celebrate Christmas. Well, yeah. But, yeah, you know. So according yeah. to this, it says Thanksgiving is a national holiday celebrated on various states in the United States, Canada, Grenada, 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 uh, Grenada. Yeah. <laughs> Saint Louisa, and Liberia. Yeah, old Liberia. They they do what? Uh, we got to go to old Liberia. <laughs> I want to know what a Liberian Thanksgiving looks like. <laughs> well, I know what a Liberian was when I was growing up. That was the lady who checked the books in and out. <laughs> so <laughs> let's go there. All right, all right. Let's talk about brining the turkey. Let's talk about brining the yeah. turkey, changing the subject. Oh, Peter, are you spatchcocking your turkey again this year? You better believe. I'm so oh glad you're God. here today. The turkey has been spatchcocked. Oh. It has been sitting in brine for about 28 hours. Oh, yeah, we're good to go, Wait, 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 wait. Back up because... In my Google search history, uh, I actually have how long to brine a turkey, and you can over-brine a turkey. The the key is if you keep it refrigerated, it'll slow down kind of the enzyme. So, like, if you're brining it at room temperature, you don't want to give it a crazy long time. Uh -huh. uh, but if you're refrigerating it, especially, like, the turkey just thawed out, it's still yeah. relatively frozen. We're, we're in good shape. Okay. Okay. But you're right. You're right. You can you can overbrine or overmarinate meat. I thought of you yesterday because when I went <laughs> to go buy my brining bags, they had some spatchcocking tools, and I'll never see that and not think of you. I walked. <laughs> I appreciate that. I I walked in yesterday <laughs> afternoon uh, from the station, and Kim had this turkey splayed out on the counter. She's trying to break the breastbone. It was like she was given a bird CPR. I mean, full <laughs> just torque, just. Hey, what's Bang. going on in here? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> she'd be great at a murder scene, is what you're saying. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah, she'd be a great accomplice. Spatchcocking. <laughs> so for people who don't know what spatchcocking is, 
Is it essentially you're splaying the turkey, you're breaking the breastbone and pressing down on it, and then it kind of does the splits? Yeah, exactly. So basically, you you cut the the <laughs> spine out from the back, and oh, you that's... break the best breastbone. So essentially. Think of a whole turkey, but you're almost unfolding the turkey, so the, all of the skin is exposed. A 12-pound bird, it only takes, believe it or not, people won't believe me, it takes about an hour and 25 minutes. Wow. It is spectacular. Don, you're shaking your head. You know the bird's already dead. Well, when he was saying, he you was shake, talking about He's over it. here shaking his head like tisk I was tisky. thinking Netflix is going to make a documentary about spatchcocking <laughs> and talk to all the na- Peter's neighbors. <laughs> Well, yeah. he seemed normal. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> well, the thing is, in all of the more traditional Thanksgiving, like Norman Rockwell, Rockwell's type, type photos, you don't see the turkey spatchcocked. You know, you see the full rounded turkey. Yeah, it, it's true. But uh, this method, uh, yeah. and especially with the brine, like the white meat is as juicy as, as any dark meat, any thigh mm-hmm. you've ever had. It's it's spectacular. Anna, I'm going to send you a picture tomorrow afternoon. Should right. we should we think about this? It's not too late Let's, for us. Uh, you mean a spatchcock, one of those two birds you bought? One of the two. You bought two turkeys. We, you're showing off, aren't you? There's well, a shortage of turkeys and you're taking two. <laughs> We, you know, that's a flex. Yeah. Right there. A flex. Well, <laughs> we're we're kind of a dark meat family, yeah. and so I don't like people to fight over the legs. You know. Yeah. yeah. So I buy two smaller ten pound birds so that there's more dark meat. I don't know. Those are barely turkeys if they're ten pounds. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just like a buff chicken. Yeah. <laughs> chicken on steroids. Chicken oh wait, been, most chicken of them are working out. Um, okay, so brining. Where are we in this process? Uh, they're brining currently, okay. and I didn't even buy. You'd be so proud of me. You've, I've not, not talked to you today. Yeah. Um, I didn't even buy like a brining kit. I just improvised. <laughs> oh, and you're gonna need to hear more about this. Mm. Oh, the what? Look. What is the turkey currently sitting in? in? Yeah. It's sitting in apple juice. They're they're they they're sitting in apple juice and rosemary and yeah. black peppercorn. Yeah, but what are, what are, kind of container are you using? The brining bag. Okay, but you, you said you didn't attention. buy you said you didn't buy anything. You bought a brining bag. I bought yeah, I did. Okay. I said that earlier. Okay, but then you said you I would be proud of you. Yeah. And no, I went I to I didn't buy like the spice kit. Like I I'm, I thought you were using like the kids plastic swimming pool <laughs> out in the yard or something <laughs> to put them in. So no spices used. Well, no, I just use spices from our own, you know, spices. Made your own, Brian. Yeah, yeah. M-Y-O-B. Yeah. All right. So uh, what are they in? They're in apple? What? Yeah, they're in apple juice and some rosemary and black peppercorn and kosher salt. What do you guys think of garlic? I threw some garlic in there. I Always. Don't know. Oh, okay, okay. And then... Uh, are you just guessing with this, Brian? It was, yeah. I totally just Sounds guessing. like you're guessing. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you're going, yeah. oh, I like the Titans to win the yeah. Super Bowl. Some time. <laughs> you know? TH. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. And uh, that's about it. I'm really proud of you. What you've, am I missing? You've come a long way. Have I, though? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, early in our Thanksgivings, you had no idea what we were doing. Yeah. Like, you yeah. didn't know I. You didn't know what turkey stuffing, you know, <laughs> you didn't. this was all foreign to you. <laughs> in your upbringing, did you guys yeah. celebrate Thanksgiving? We did, but... Uh, I mean, really only a couple times with the turkey. It was usually fresh seafood or something. Was that a Asian culture thing? Like they, that your yeah. parents came over and went, hey, everybody's getting together, but they didn't. They never really grasped it or what happened? Yeah, I mean, it's like they got the concept that, hey, you know, everybody's off for the holidays, so we should have a special meal of sorts. 
but ours did not look like you know turkey stuffing mashed potatoes it was like you know in asian culture a lot of times you celebrate special occasions with live seafood that's what you do and so it's dan, lobster or dungeness crab or dan lanning talked about he said that he he was he does the same thing like they do they don't do traditional turkey mm -hmm. and his his wife uh i think is half asian mm -hmm. and so let me ask you this because this came up at christmas time as a kid did your parents that if you got a present from them at Christmas time because this is another tradition I think it's cultural like how did they understand Christmas because they came from Taiwan to the US right and they they Christmas didn't celebrate Christmas traditionally was not big no it wasn't a big Christmas. deal no it wasn't no. and it's huge here huge here yeah yeah and so like let's say uh, you know as a kid you got a present yeah uh, I would I mean they eventually caught on that you know uh, Christmas usually came with presents but they they often didn't like quite know how to wrap it yeah like i remember my mom wrapping one of my presents in a suitcase once <laughs> which is nowadays like very sustainable that's pretty funny. reusable but like but she's she, she didn't really understand the concept of like wrapping paper like, why would you and if she's you had to like grow well, up with it. i'm gonna give you this present i'm gonna put it in something so it's obscured <laughs> and then you're just gonna unzip the suitcase and voila here's your present we should try that with our kids this year just put out three or four suitcases, <laughs> and they'll be like, what's going on here? Yeah, Where's your presents? <laughs> Get out of town. <laughs> you know, take what's inside and leave. No. Uh, all right, so this is going to be really exciting. Uh, coming back, we're going to talk about a little bit more about what we're thankful for in sports. Plus, I want you to start thinking about this, guys. Uh, let's just say I say to you, somebody asked me this today. He said, what's your ideal Thanksgiving plate? And I was like, what do you mean? And they go, Ideally, what's on the plate? I had a different answer than people, uh, I think, expected. But I want you to think about what's on your ideal plate. Plus, coming back, we'll talk about the NFL games coming up on Thanksgiving. And Jonathan Smith will be joining us at 530. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Cool thing for our listeners who uh, may be tuning in to some of the World Cup matches, John Strong, the voice of American soccer, friend of this show, who got his start on this radio show uh, after he graduated from the University of Oregon. He's been uh, on the call there for the World Cup. And uh, I just tweeted, Dana, you, I saw you tweeted, you know, you saw his tweet about the folder he carries. You know, he carries this folder that is a that he got on a tour of the Rose Garden Arena with his student newspaper class when he was a sophomore in high school. It is a, uh, a Blazers folder that has like a uh, leather basketball cover on it. He carries it with him for every broadcast he's ever done. And he got to call um, the U.S. match in the World Cup uh, just, uh, what, a couple of days ago. Really proud of that kid. Kid? Can I call him a kid? <laughs> He'll always be a kid to us. But right? I, I just remember the first time he came on the show and he opened the mic. And I thought to myself, oh, he's Bob Costas. Like, he was that smooth and that good and not trying to duplicate or replicate anybody else. And the more I worked with him, the more I realized this, he, he, is, uh, he is on his way. Like, he was on uh, – he, he had some jet fuel 
behind him. So it was really cool to see, you know, John Strong uh, emerge as the voice of American soccer. Yeah, you know, a friend of mine um, saw the tweet, and uh, my friend was in broadcasting and is now teaching journalism to high school students, and he said that he actually used John Strong's career as a life lesson in class. He said it was like the old chase your dreams, work relentlessly, st smart, sm start small, aim high, grow and evolve, do your best, do what you love lesson. You know, there's a lot of us, I think, in the metro area that are very proud of him because we've seen him evolve, you know, from calling games in high school to where he's at now, which is crazy. He was at Lake Oswego High School calling games, and he went to the University of Oregon as a student broadcaster, graduated from Oregon. He had dabbled in different radio stations, but he ended up, by uh, some stroke of luck for me, as the very first producer and sat in the seat that uh, Stephen is in today uh, on the show in the infancy of the show. And I will often text him because I can't remember the exact date we started the show. <laughs> and I'll say, hey, what was our first day? He'll and then he'll, he knows it right off the top of his head. Uh, but here, here he is calling some stuff. Uh, he, went out, he, he left the show and he went to work for the Timbers. And then the Timbers were so stupid. The Timbers had him as their play-by-play -play broadcaster. And guess what? I, this is a little-known fact. Guess who negotiated his very first deal with the Timbers? <laughs> Yours truly. Yeah. Me. It was a little bit like the scene with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. You know, Ben Affleck went in and negotiated for Matt Damon. You know, uh, you know, my client would be uh, better off if he had. It was a little bit like that scene. I'll never forget the meeting I had with the Timbers. And I said, uh, you know, they were going to pay him what they were going to pay him. Uh -huh. And they were kind of like, that's all we're going to pay him. Right. So I was negotiating for fringe benefits. This is before he had a real agent. I was going, well, you know, he would like he, he he would feel better about this deal if he had some season tickets. So they gave him two season tickets. I think he retains those tickets today. But I think he does. Yeah. But uh, it was just silly. And then he fired me and he got a real agent. And then he went on to, uh, you know, obviously Fox and whatever else he's done. And he's just done really well for himself. But for people who don't know, if you're listening – to Fox in the World Cup, and even if it's not the U.S. game, you may be hearing the voice of American soccer. Diego Costa running at it. Pepe got knocked to the face. He goes down. We're playing on right now. Diego Costa still a chance. Diego Costa! Does it himself! All square as it stands in Sochi. There he is calling the Olympics. And how about this? How about this one when Croatia tied England? In the second half, uh, this was a couple few years ago. Space and time to get this cross in. Perisic charging in! Croatia's tied the game! Ivan Perisic! All square in the semifinal! There it is, John Strong on the call. Really <laughs> insanely proud of that guy. I get goosebumps. Me too. <laughs> talking about. You know what's about. incredible about him is that he does so much prep. And, you know, a, a good play-by-play -play announcer does that. Like, they're, they're not just winging it as they go into the game. He really takes extensive notes on each of the players uh, before he goes to call. Maybe too much. Maybe <laughs> overdoes, overdoes it. I've seen his notes. They're pretty crazy. <laughs> I know. Uh, I, I put together this montage of John Strong when he left the show 11 years ago. Okay, mm -hmm. he left. He was leaving the show to go off on his career, 
but he had been calling some soccer games. All the way through, towards Cooper, it's a penalty! Referee Jeff Gamble points to the spot as Cooper was hauled down, and here's the Timbers' chance in the 64th minute. The 26-year-old from Dallas, the team leading three goals, can he make it four? Can he send the Timbers Army into their celebrations? Saved! Flag is up, flag is up, goalkeeper Hamid came off his line. It's got to be retaken, the penalty. Another save, and again the flag is up! It's going to be retaken a second time! Unbelievable! Jack Jusbury has two goals this year, trying to make it three. There you go. Winner at 44 to the back line, again the short free kick to the wing for Khalifa Hassan. To get by one and five, Kenny Cooper scored! Henri from the pair. Henri again has scored, and it's 3-2. Oh, goodness gracious. That's his first professional goal soon he saw it. Moni, DK, and from Moni! Bird to serve. Nielsen is up, only a punch, it falls for Darlington Nagby! Oh, it's absolutely brilliant, and the Timbers are right back in it! Literally, the hair on my arms is standing up, and I don't know if it's because I know the kid or not, but if you're watching the World Cup broadcasts on Fox, you're getting John Strong. Uh, He's calling uh, a whole bunch of games in the uh, early rounds here of the World Cup, the qualifying rounds. Leave it here. we got more on the NFL games and your Thanksgiving coming up. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. I guess uh, today's Thanksgiving Eve. Yeah. Why don't we uh, Why don't we have a tradition like, you know, people on Christmas Eve they have traditions. Why Why are there no Thanksgiving Eve traditions? One bite of mashed potatoes. Yeah. I don't know. Something. Uh, you know, that we should come up with a tradition. I'm a tradition-oriented person. Uh, I want to go around the room. What is your perfect Thanksgiving or your ideal Thanksgiving? Anna, you don't like the word perfect. I hate the word perfect. Why? Tell the people why you don't like perfect. Uh. Well, I think perfectionism is a little bit of an illness in our society. I worry about it, especially for young people. Um, I don't want our girls growing up thinking that they have to be perfect, look perfect, uh, you know, work perfect. And it, I, I just, I don't know, it's, it's, it goes deep for me, but I think it leads to a lot of anxiety and depression, especially in social media and the filters that kids use and, and all the things. There you go. So we, I try to get our household to. Not so I don't have to be sick. perfect. No, I can be. I can just fumble around. You I know. Can tell well, you, John, you're not perfect. How <laughs> <laughs> dare <Where are> you? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Bob. We strive. We strive. You do our best. We celebrate effort. I was two and four in my Pac-12 picks last week exactly. <laughs> against I mean, the spread. No, we've had bad weeks. Yep, bad week last week. All right, uh, I want to go around the room though, Stephen. You're going to lead us off. Give us your ideal Thanksgiving. What does it include, start to finish? Yeah, so ideal for me is uh, hanging out with the family. What we do always is we always take our family picture on Thanksgiving, and then that's our like our Christmas card picture. So that's always one thing I look forward to, uh, just with the family. I, I like to send out Christmas cards now that I'm an adult. I think that's pretty fun. Uh, the other thing is at my wife's parents' house. So 
her dad is a great cook, but this is he he's a very interesting cook as well. He has cooked me so many weird meals and they either are really good, like he made the best street tacos I've ever had, mm. but I have also had food that was absolutely horrendous from him. <laughs> like the scale is so big and there was one year <laughs> that he made this gravy and it's the legendary gravy. It is it was the best thing we've ever had. I, we had one friend who was literally drinking it out of the uh little <laughs> gravy train. Oh yeah. And it's never been that that way again. He he's a little you know he's a little crazy. He's old. He's uh you know he's off the wall. So he doesn't remember. He just throws things in a, like in a pot and then figures one it out. pot patty. Yeah. And so <laughs> every year we talk about that gravy. And so I always look forward to it. And I hope this is the year. But I have no no you know I'm not confident about it. But this is the one <laughs> gravy man. It's got to come back at some point in my life. All right, I love that. Um, Peter, give us your ideal Thanksgiving. Getting some of that gravy. What was in that? Methadone or something? We, yeah. we asked him. Cracks. He has no idea what he put in it. He doesn't remember. <laughs> Nobody knows anything. <laughs> That's beautiful, man. I Person. love it. That's terrible. It was a, it was a true happening. It was an event. It was. Uh, my my ideal Thanksgiving is. Uh, I mean, you got to have football on the TV, but I'm never watching it closely. You know what I mean? I just need to know it's there. It's sort of like a like a warm blanket mm. on the day, just having it on the background. Uh, I love being in the kitchen. I love being in the kitchen every day, but especially on Thanksgiving, you get to shine. Uh, one thing I've done the last few years that I'm never doing again. I have not done the huge family gathering we've it's kim myself and my eight-year-old and that is how i love it it's mellow it's orderly we still make everything we make the normal quantities so we have like four days worth of leftovers uh but it's just the people that are closest to me so you have family you know you tell them what you appreciate about them what they appreciate about you and uh yeah a lot of stuffing a lot of gravy a lot of spatch cocked turkey and uh i'm in great shape <laughs> and i follow that Oh, wow. Um, uh, I really enjoy watching the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Uh, mm. I'm such a parade nerd. Um, yeah. And so, and if there's a local parade and the weather doesn't suck, you know, it's kind of nice to try and hit a local parade. I know. Um, and then really just like, I, I don't know, people can relate to this. It gets harder and harder. Uh, as the years go by to try to get everybody together as kids get older and they have other interests and things like that. So honestly, anytime that we can have the whole family together in one place, uh, that's really ideal for me. I kind of shoot low <laughs> now. What's on your plate at, at Thanksgiving dinner? Uh, well, turkey. I'm not a ham on Thanksgiving no, person. you're a turkey person. Very much a turkey person. Um, stuffing, mashed potatoes. I can do with or without yams. A little bit of cranberry sauce. I actually prefer the canned. Hmm. And uh, everything covered in gravy. There you go. Maybe maybe the gravy that was just aforementioned. That, I wanna, that sounds like great yeah. gravy. I was gonna ask Anna and Peter what your uh, like what your dessert choices are because pumpkin pie is the big one. But I'm not a big pumpkin pie fan, so I want like a berry pie. Mm. I, mm. I'm I'm with you. Uh, pecan pie is a winner yep. as well. And, uh, yep. you know, it's similar to pumpkin, but you can go sweet potato pie as well. Mm-hmm. I like the pecan pie. Yeah, we have both. Yeah. Pecan and winner. We do. And pumpkin. Good yeah. for pecan us. Pecan or pecan. Uh, yeah, Whatever tomato, you want tomato. it to be. Whatever it is, put it in front of me. Uh, gravy or gravy? Um, let me, uh, let me give mine. My, my ideal Thanksgiving is more about the pace of the day. Uh, I need a cup of coffee in the morning. I don't mind the parade being on or a dog show. So sometimes oh, right. there's a dog show on, right. parade being on, that's okay. 
Um, I'm like Peter. The football does go on. If it's a good game, like I was looking at the NFL games for Thursday, it's Buffalo-Detroit at 9.30 in the morning. Then it's the New York Giants and the Dallas Cowboys at 1.30. And then the nightcap is the Patriots and the Vikings. Uh, I think all three games will be compelling. I think that's good to have them on. But for me, it's more just about the pace of the day being sort of mellow. Like, we spend so much time rushing, 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 rushing. And I know the, the, the thanks part of Thanksgiving gets lost. But for me, if we could just slow down a little bit on this Thursday Thanksgiving thing um, and just kind of soak up the day, that to me, that feels like a win. And so, I, and then my grandfather, I have a little tradition that's my tradition. Maybe my brother shares it as well because I j- often will get a text from him. My grandfather on Thanksgiving used to pour himself a highball. He would get a glass of ice. He would pour some Crown Royal in the glass. He would put, you know, some Sprite or something into the glass. And he would, about 2 p.m. as the football was going on or whatnot, he'd have him pour himself a drink. So my brother will often send me just a photo of that drink sitting on the counter like he's just poured for himself and so we do that kind of back and forth so which means i'm going to have a nap in that afternoon <laughs> if i'm drinking the highball but on my plate uh I, somebody asked me this earlier today and i had a weird answer because i generally don't end up with what i want on my plate why i'm because i'm not a selfish person and you mentioned earlier we're kind of a dark meat household and i grew up that way like my parents my sister they all like dark meat I never got to have dark meat. So I just had, I took what was left. And so people always say, do you like white meat or dark meat? I I, I like white meat because that's what I've always had. Because everybody else likes the dark meat. Well, you're getting a leg this year, though. I don't need a leg. I'm just saying, it's not important to me. It's not like a high priority item to me because that's, no, I don't need a leg. But I'm just saying, yeah, you have two turkeys. You have four legs. Come on. So, (laughs) good thing I didn't say eight. Um, (laughs) But it's, to me, it's more about, the gravy, stuffing, mashed potatoes, turkey, all being on the plate, right? That's that's what it's about, okay? John's in Beaverton. John's got something to add. Go ahead, John. So, John, you're an Italian. I'm an Italian. My memory is all about the night before Thanksgiving. My family would travel from Portland to Boise, where my father's eldest sister was, and the evening meal on the night that we arrived was homemade gnocchi mm. with a uh, skirt steak in an Italian sauce that she would do from scratch. And I will tell you, if I could have had that meal again on Thanksgiving Day, I would have that every, every year, forever and ever. But now, like you, my family's all a dark meat group, so I always got to use to take the wings. That's the thing that I want on my plate. Because they get the, the I, I like the crispiness of the skin and everything else. Do, are you a gnocchi guy? Yep, and and I've we've made it, and my grandmother has a recipe that she has passed down, and it is uh, absolutely when it is done right, melted your mouth good. And Anna, we've done that. We've usually done it around Christmas, Christmas time. time. Yeah, that's a Christmas thing. Because for us. in our house, it was a Christmas like Christmas Eve or maybe the week of Christmas thing that my grandmother would do. And so that's kind of the tradition that we have done. But, yes, um, and, you know, every uh, every uh, culture has got the, a gnocchi or a dumpling or a ravioli or uh, some kind of, uh, you know, stuffed 
goodness. Well, and it's funny to watch you try to actually shoot for perfection on that because yeah. you'll do like three or four rounds just to try and replicate what your grandmother. Because my grandmothers were so light, they would melt in your mouth, and if you don't do it right, they come out a little too heavy. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I'd take multiple shots at it. Leave it here. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald-faced truth. All that talk about Thanksgiving and traditions and white meat and dark meat and yucky. Oh, it got, I'm hungry now. I'm thankful for you as a listener. Proud that you're out there. I'm thankful that we're living in times where... Uh, pandemic is it can we say the pandemic's behind us or no like i I brought that up with a couple people and they're like it's not behind us what do you what do you say to people as it pertains to the pandemic talking to me or anybody i I think it's over i'm over it (laughs) you're over it (laughs) i don't know if it's over but i definitely i'm definitely over it so uh so i say it's over people are back in stadiums kids are back in school i think a lot of people are still dealing with uh you know, obviously the virus itself in different forms, but the economy, I don't think we're back yet from with economically, but uh, I think psychologically, I said that to somebody the other day, it was, it was a physician, and I said, you know, are we out of the pandemic? And he said, I don't know if we're ever going to be out of it. And I was, to me, I don't want to hear that. Like, I don't want to hear that, you know, I'm head down, powering forward. I'm just thankful that you're out there listening. I'm thankful that you're going to enjoy this Thanksgiving and that on Friday we'll see some Pac-12 football games. On Thursday we'll see some NFL games. And on Saturday we'll see more college football games, including the Pac-12, that will include fans inside the stadiums, uh, NBA games going on. So uh, I'm thankful thankful for all the uh, people that were on the front lines dealing with uh, illnesses and sick people in emergency rooms and hospitals and I'm thankful for the first responders out there that helped a lot of people their jobs could not have been easy I had an easier job than them way easier job talking about sports writing about sports in the last year or so um, I appreciate you all for being there um, coming up on Friday it will be Black Friday it's going to be a big shopping day uh, if you're looking for uh, a gift for the sports fan in your life, uh, consider a subscription to johnconzano.com. I want to throw that out there. Uh, I've had people ask me, uh, can they buy gift subscriptions? Yes, you just go to johnconzano.com. You can gift a subscription to somebody else, in, you know, your dad, your grandfather, your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, whoever in your life that uh, you want to uh, connect with me. Uh, happy to do that. Happy that you're out there. Uh, we got a lot to talk about in this hour. Jonathan Smith will be joining us coming up at 5.30, bottom of the hour. Beavers coach right here, nowhere else but here. You'll catch Jonathan Smith. I'm going to ask him about his Thanksgiving, and then we're going to drill down on the game on Saturday. What is Oregon State playing for? Uh, what about the health of the defensive players at Oregon State? How is he preparing for Bo Nix, the Oregon quarterback, not knowing how healthy he is. Is he going to take the Kyle Whittingham approach? What did they learn? What did they learn from the Utah-Oregon game? What did uh, Oregon State learn from that game? Uh, and as they, as you position yourself for a bowl game in today's world, like I kind of came away from the Jack Coletto interview yesterday, linebacker Oregon State, number 12 in your program. 
I came away from that interview sort of viewing this game on Saturday as Oregon State's bowl game because I wonder about some of the seniors who may be draft eligible. Will they participate in what well, should be a decent bowl game for Oregon State, but it's not like the end-all, be-all. We saw it last year in the L.A. Bowl. I don't, I don't know how important winning that bowl game is versus maybe beating Oregon in this rivalry game. It feels like it's bigger for Oregon State. And for Oregon, it's interesting because I think Oregon's players, largely not from the state of Oregon, and certainly the players who aren't from Oregon, probably understand the rivalry, but they haven't grown up living it, breathing it. And I'm wondering, from their standpoint, you know, they, they still have a shot to get to Las Vegas. They seem to be playing for a whole bunch. I think you have two very motivated teams on Saturday. I'll ask Jonathan Smith about it coming up at 530 we got to talk about a broken thumb. We have to talk about, uh, you know, uh, a prosecutor involved in college football and an NFL quarterback that had to apologize to his teammates. Well, you'll hear about all of that in the 5 at 5. The 5 at 5. Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz of Wilsonville. See more than 4,000 vehicles at Swickert.com. Let's start with Aaron Rodgers' broken thumb. It's true. He said that his right thumb is broken, but it won't keep him from playing. He finally and reluctantly confirmed today that it's indeed broken. He's been taping it. He says it doesn't make a difference with him playing. It won't make a difference. He's just going to continue to tape it. Apparently, uh, his thumb it went from being hurt to being broken. It was hurt on October 9th in London as he attempted a Hail Mary pass and got sacked at the end of the game. Now, he says he's had worse injuries. He says the days off have helped him. I don't know what to make of this because I can't tell if, you know, his accuracy numbers as a whole this season have been down, especially since the injury. You know, he was he was at about almost 70% of completion percentage through the first five games of the season. Next six games, he was around 62% and threw four interceptions. So. Maybe this is playing a factor. Guys, do you think Aaron Rodgers is talking about the broken thumb now because he's trying to temper expectations or explain his performance, or what is he doing? Yeah, I think it is a, it is a factor in that decision. I want to know, did the Packers know about this injury and they were purposely leaving him off the injury report? Because that mm. is uh, definitely a no-no in the NFL. We've been talking about that with college football. I'm more inter- interested in that, like, have reporters known it because this should have been out that he had a broken thumb before the losing streak. So I think now it's just it's good for him to say, yeah, I have had a broken thumb all this time. That's why I'm struggling. But it should have been out there already. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder how people are going to feel about that. It feels like they're trying to explain away their disappointing season too. Uh, number two in the five at five. Let's go to Dan Lanning, University of Oregon coach, coaching in his first Civil War football game. He talks about Oregon State's defense here. This is after uh, yeah, uh, today's practice. Here's Dan Lanning, Oregon coach, talking about the defense at Oregon State that has been very stingy. They're a really good defense. They played better and better the last five weeks. I think they're averaging 12 points per game the last five weeks. Um, they, they paint you know, a lot of different pictures to the quarterback. They do a good job with the disguises. Good job with the disguises. I think you know the performance I'm looking at from Oregon State was the performance that they turned in against Washington at Husky Stadium a couple of weeks ago. It was a losing effort by Oregon State, but 
Uh, I think they really did create some problems for Michael Penix Jr. and made Washington one-dimensional in a way that was interesting to watch. Can they do that with Oregon? I'm not sure, but it's why I think Oregon will score in the mid to high 20s in this game. I think Oregon will be able to run the ball a little bit on Oregon State, but not a lot. It's good rushing defense. I think Bo Nix will have some success throwing the ball, but I wouldn't expect Bo Nix to throw for maybe more than about 260 yards in this game right in there I don't think he's gonna have a huge numbers game I think that this game is going to feature a whole lot of running backs on both sides a whole lot of defense and I think it's gonna be a little bit of a rumble Uh, I like Oregon State in a close game but you know for Duck fans it for me it's a coin flip it's it's you know it's gonna be a turnover here it's gonna be a tipped ball there I think it's going to be a really interesting game, compelling game, fun game to watch. Um, I, I will give the nod to Oregon State because they're at home. But, man, I, I am so looking forward to Saturday's football game. I think it's going to be dynamite. When was the last time you felt like these two teams were this close? Probably 2009-ish when Mike Riley and Chip Kelly mixed it up. Yeah, and it's been a they are playing time. for a Rose Bowl. Yeah. I, and look. It's fun. That's fun to me. I don't know if fans are nervous about the game, but I think both teams are a little anxious, and I like that. I like that there's some uncertainty. There's some big stakes. I mean, if Oregon wins the game, they go to Vegas, and they go as the one seed to Las Vegas against USC. And then they got to turn around and, on a short week, get ready for USC. Uh, and if Oregon loses the game, Oregon State is going to claim like they're the state champions and they're going to celebrate it like it was a bowl victory and i think it gives a ton of momentum to oregon state so i just think this is this is really an interesting game i think i'm so excited about this i think it's one of the best football seasons that we have had in the last 20 years collectively you guys ready for some nfl talk let's do it yeah all right Let's talk about Zach Wilson. He's trying to win back his teammates with an apology. How about this one? He's under heavy criticism, spoke to the team on Wednesday, and admitted he botched Sunday's post-game news conference. Did you guys hear him on Sunday? Did anybody hear this live? I, I didn't hear it. I saw some quotes from the transcript. What did you make? Is it something he had to apologize for? or? Because I didn't hear it. Let's just say if he was performing well, he wouldn't have to apologize for that. But I think coupled with the fact that he's been so inconsistent, uh, it's, it's kind of rubbed some teammates the wrong way. But I didn't think it was anything really that bad. Yeah, he said that the criticism that he has taken is deserved. He was called out by coaches on Monday and lost his starting job. And his father apparently reached out to him and said, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? He said, uh, you know, he he did not handle the situation right. Uh, I want to I want to quote his exact quotes, but uh, basically, basically, he's benched because he expressed some uh, viewpoints after the game that his teammates and coaches thought were inappropriate and. You know, this is a guy who has dealt with a lot of success in his career. When he was at BYU and now in the NFL, he finds himself with the uh, with the Jets. But uh, 
you know, he, he, let me just, I got his post-game comments right here. Basically, he basically <laughs> went on a monologue on the Rich Eisen show and did a five-minute, uh, you know, rant about it not being on him and he's not getting support and so uh, he's on a short leash so to speak in New York will not be the starter he's benched let's move on seven Michigan State players have been uh, charged by a prosecutor in Michigan for their role in the melee Let's call it that. I don't want to call it a fight because, it, you know, they appeared to jump one of the Michigan football players after the tunnel situation went on on October 29th. Um, one of them is being charged with a felony assault. And if there were no video of this, I don't think anything would have happened. It's one of these cases where I think 2022 and the fact that somebody videotaped what happened in the hallway, basically a mass of Michigan State players surrounded some Michigan players hit one, kicked one, knocked one to the ground. Um, you had, you know, seven different players now being charged with crimes stemming from that assault on two Michigan players. I went off on this earlier in the show. I don't. I, there's just no place for this. There's no place for this anywhere in the game. No place for this in a college rivalry, if you want to call it that. And uh, not good. That so to speak, is the 5 at 5. Five biggest things going on, kind of, sort of, in sports. Uh, how much will the NBA be part of your Thanksgiving, guys, versus the NFL? Um, Not as much. I, I, yeah, I think most people are going to watch the NFL, so I you know, I can't really uh, can't really butt in on that. That's an argument I'm not willing to lose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, but even, like, you know, the fact that, like, come Friday, you got a bunch of games. Like, does the NBA, because I just noticed, like, I was looking for NBA games going, okay, will the NBA try to go head-to-head? They won't. But Friday, they kind of ramp it up. And do do they just sort of defer to the NFL on Thanksgiving and then they take Christmas? I mean, I think that's the smart move. You struggle any given Sunday, regardless, against the NFL. So let them have Thanksgiving, take Christmas, take MLK Day. And I'm glad that it's not conflicting. I'm an NBA guy. But Thursday, for me, is reserved for the NFL. But Friday, I get to pop open League Pass. There's a million games on the schedule, some of them pretty good. And so I can take that day off and really around just relax and enjoy it but the thing is is now nfl's gonna take over christmas as well like that was the they'll end, try that was mm-hmm. the nba's thing but oh they will then the nfl is going to come into saturdays and the college football is looking at moving the season sooner so they don't have to go head to head with the nfl which i would i would actually support that i think the college football season could start a week earlier but i don't want to see it start too soon but the nfl is going to start picking off some saturdays during the regular season and college football is not happy about that Yeah, I mean, I believe it. And the thing about football is there's only so many games. I mean, the NBA can look at any given day. You know, they can look at an NFL Sunday and go, well, whatever. We've got, you know, 82 games. The season is way too long as it is. But college football, I mean, there are only so many opportunities to get on TV there. That's that's a tough situation for them. All right. And Zach Wilson, you know, he's been benched. I'm looking at his postgame comments. You know, he just – he's criticizing his teammates, and he's basically – um, talking about everybody else being the problem. He threw for 77 yards in his last start. And uh, his head coach, who you know used to be the D coordinator with the Niners, so I know him and I think he's a stand-up guy, says this is not the nail in the coffin. 
for him. This is not the end of his career, but you often see stuff like this that doesn't leave a player. Uh, what do you guys think happens with Zach Wilson? Is this is this kind of the beginning of the end of him? Uh, not necessarily. I think it's more than the comments. I think his play, I mean, the Jets, yeah. they started well, and they were actually talking playoffs, and they've fallen off a, off a cliff, and a lot of that's due to Zach Wilson. So they're going to get wide in there, and I think if he plays well, then Wilson's out of luck. Now, I don't necessarily expect that. And then you've already got that pre-built uh, reasoning that, hey, we just wanted him to get his fundamentals right. He apologized to the team, and he He's right back at it in a week or two. Yeah, I mean, I think someone will, someone else, some other team will give him another shot. We've seen Sam Darnold get another shot, Baker Mayfield get another shot, and he was a high draft pick. So I don't, I think his career with the Jets may be over at this point. Like he may have lost all credibility in that locker room, but I think some other team is always quarterback desperate in the NFL. Some other team will give him another shot. I, I don't, I don't have a lot of faith that he'll be very good, but I think he'll get another chance. Yeah, I think uh, it's just one of those bad moments. But it, but there, you know, we've seen quarterbacks who have had reputations that killed them with their locker rooms. Jay Cutler being one of those guys that you know. And, and I think if you you can do this once, but if you're Zach Wilson, you got to be sincere with your apology, and then you can't blame your teammates when you're not doing well out there. It's just not a good look. Jonathan Smith's coming up uh, in about 12 minutes. I want you here for it. Oregon State's football coach will join us. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Did you guys see that uh, Emmanuel Acco said that Justin Herbert is a social media quarterback? Did you see that? He's getting trolled now by the... Uh, by the uh, San Diego or San Diego Chargers, the Los Angeles Chargers players are, are all going after him. What does that even mean? Basically, well, I'm going to play the cut here. Might as well just, you know, instead of supposing, I will play the cut. I was just going. I was going to tweet. Tell me if I should tweet something here, because uh, I'm not sure if I should. Because he, okay, obviously he's a Fox Sports talking head, right? And so part of his job is to go on all these shows and, you know, be the halftime guy or the post-game guy who pops up and then has the hot take, right? So that's part of it. But he, uh, here's what he said. I'll just play it, and then we'll talk about whether or not I should tweet. Hopefully it will load. Anytime now. But this is about Justin Herbert throwing an interception at the end of a game and whether or not, that uh, you know, he base he called him a social media quarterback. I'm having a little bit of an issue with that. Him calling him a social media quarterback. Sorry, I'm trying to boot this up and install while I'm doing it, but uh, having an issue with that. So I will uh, revisit this. But this is great sound. Listen to this. Hopefully, it will play. Uh, I might have to put it on YouTube. If I put it on YouTube, should the Niners be the go. most feared team in the NFC? All right. Yeah. I, I, no, no, that's so. not the cut I want. I want the cut about. I want the cut about uh, Herbert. Here we go. Sorry, guys. Struggling with this. Struggling mightily with this. But my my uh, big takeaway here. Hold on. Let me see if I can get it to play without me being tuned in. Uh, my big takeaway is that uh, Emmanuel Aka wants us to talk about him. If he says something outlandish, is it? Am I just doing what he wants me to do? 
if I end up tweeting at him and saying, this is from the same guy who came out and said, uh, by the way, Justin Herbert could be the, one of the biggest mistakes on draft day ever. So it kind of feels like to me that he wants so badly to be right that he's not willing to say something rational when it comes to when it comes to Justin Herbert. I got That's, the sound right here, John. Go ahead, play it up. Justin Herbert is a social media quarterback. What do I mean? Justin Herbert makes throws that can go viral on social media in this day and age. Instagram reels, TikTok videos, Twitter clips. He makes social media throws. And on social media, they don't show you interceptions. That's not fun. People aren't going to retweet a pick. People aren't going to retweet a bad sack. People aren't going to retweet a bad decision. But that is who Justin Herbert is, a social media quarterback. We always look for Justin Herbert to succeed. But had Tua made the mistake to throw a pick in the end of the game with two timeouts remaining, he'd be crushed, like Joy said. Had Jalen Hurts thrown a pick with two timeouts remaining at the end of the game, he would be crushed. But for whatever reason, our beloved Justin Herbert, he does it, and we simply look away. I won't. I'm looking dead into the heart of the camera. Okay. Now, what I want to tweet is, this is the same guy who said Justin Herbert could easily be one of the biggest mistakes of the draft. Like, it's, it's so obvious he wants to be wrong but there's also some irony here he's calling justin herbert a social media quarterback while he's on social media he's the social media commentator here like it's give me a break like the, it's obvious hypocrisy and irony wrapped into one yeah i'd leave it alone i think it's i and i mean you have a great point you could reply you know with that but it's all part of the game it's like all over my timeline all people you know calling you know retweeting a, a ridiculous hot take from like Stephen a or skip yeah. bayless calling him an yeah idiot like a fox look at the engagement they're getting it's it's all part of the game yeah i've had to block numerous people like uh that are you know the the national personalities are just trying to get those hot takes so I, I think Peter's right. I think you just leave this one alone. Uh, you can, can I can I subtweet him? Can I say like it's not lost on me that the guy guy on social media calling Justin Herbert a social media quarterback may want to look in the mirror? How about that? Yeah, you could do something like that. The the key thing is personally, I just don't like to inv- engage in a direct way that's going to inflate that view count. Yeah. Okay. But it's okay. a bad it's a bad take. I mean that is, it is that, a bad day. It's horrible. Take. It's a it's someone desperate for uh, attention, who's going. You know, look at me, look at me, and tweeting it out. Yeah, you're right. I'm gonna leave it alone. I'm gonna leave it alone. It's a it's a it's a ridiculous perspective. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, coming up. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, he played in the Civil War football games. He's coaching in them. Jonathan Smith knows a rivalry when he sees it. Joining us now, uh, give us an idea of your ideal Thanksgiving day. Like, you know, how does the morning start? Do you watch football? Are you locked into your team and prep? Is there any time for stuffing and turkey? Yeah, uh, I kind of like where I'm, where we're headed to. Uh... Tomorrow, we're going to wake up, get into meetings in the morning, have a have a practice, okay. and then have a meal with our team and family. Uh, so we'll hang out here around the facility most of the the morning and lunchtime, and then head home. And then we'll probably do something together as a family. So it's like the best of both worlds, man. I get around the team and celebrate Thanksgiving with the practice, but then also get a little family time. 
What was it like for you as a kid? Like, what was it? Did you have Thanksgiving traditions in the Smith household? You know, we we would get together with aunts, uncles, cousins, that type of thing. Obviously, doing turkey and gravy and uh, dressing and all of that. Uh, but tradition was to get with some family, and I always enjoyed it. Coach, uh, this this is a lot of fun. You you are half responsible for this because I'm looking at what you're doing at Oregon State and what Dan Lanning's doing at Oregon, and I'm going, this is going to be fun for the rest of us. And it looks like it's set up to be fun for some time if you guys keep doing what you're doing. Um, what is it like for you to be in the middle of this when this is going to be a great game? This is going to be a competitive game. It means something. You have a shot to get to nine wins. They're trying to get to Vegas. You're trying to get to the best bowl game. You, you can possibly get to. How's that feel? Yeah, it, you know, it feels good that we've got, got the game. It's important, and like you say, it means something. And uh, you know, I, I do. I do enjoy these guys we're working with, players working hard, and you want to play the end of the season with something on the line and something to mean for. And uh, so, yeah, it adds to the excitement. And obviously, here at Oregon State, we're trying to to keep the thing going and playing bigger and bigger games the next few years. There, there. You know, you played as a player with a little chip on your shoulder, and as a coach, I feel like it's still there a little bit. And I know when I, let's say, I pick you guys, or maybe I don't pick you to win big, or maybe I pick against you, and maybe the odds are against you guys. Do you like that better when you look up and you're a little bit of an underdog, or would you like to go into a game as like a you know 14 point favorite one day and all you know, uh, big up, you know, a lot of downside, no upside uh, when you walk into the stadium. Right, you know, I think we're all competitive, and whatever the circumstances are, if you're, you know, picked to win big or you're picked to lose, all of that you you, you know, compete against, and you get opportunity to to play that week, and what people are saying or what the, you know, people think that it's going to take place, all of that. You just love the competition of it. I think our our current roster, these guys, they love competing and uh, backs against the wall or heavy favorites, all of that. They love putting it out on the field on Saturday. How do you prepare for Oregon when you see Bo Nix is kind of, you know, is he Bo Nix from week three or Bo Nix from week 11? Or, you know, there's just a different player last week against Utah. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to lie to you. It's, it's a little bit uncertain. I mean, the guy's a really good player, competitive, skilled, athletic, all of that. Um, but what what they were trying to show last week in regards to how they were using him, that was a little bit different than previous weeks. And so how do you prepare if, if this guy is? He's going to be a whole lot more healthy this next week and be able to move and run. Because and, he's had some huge runs through the yes. season now. This guy uh, is a good player, uh, throwing it and, and running it. And, you know, against Utah, it was limited in the amount they were going to try to extend it with him pulling the ball or moving even the pocket. So it's a little bit different. We'll kind of find out. Um, how how it's going in the game, uh, but he's not alone now. They they've got some good players. That O line's playing pretty good. They got some dynamic playmakers, uh, so it's a tough offense to defend. I looked at it in during the game and I thought, gosh, he's really like on a stool back there behind the line, and he's just slinging the ball out early in the game because it wasn't even. You know, I went to tweet and I tweeted he. You know, they're using him on th- three step drops, and he wasn't even taking three step drops. He was taking the snap, maybe taking a step. And, and just delivering the ball, and they did that pretty successfully in the first half. But Utah made some adjustments. What did you see happening in the second half of that game? Yeah, you know, you watch Utah a little bit, and they weren't honoring the quarterback as much as they were early on. And 
and chase them down. Again, the Ducks do a good job. And let's face it, Utah's good on defense, and they're a good team in general. Uh, but you can see in the second half, less honor in the quarterback, diving on the running back, understanding the ball was going to come out quick, playing some tight coverage. Yeah. And that's why I do. I give that you know Oregon team credit. They battled that that game. They had it 14-3, and then they gave them seven points, and it turned into a real game. Um, but they were able to find a way to finish in the fourth quarter. Yeah, it was interesting in the second quarter, or I think it was the second quarter, Oregon lines up Knicks in the shotgun and he goes in motion towards their sideline. I'm sure you saw this on film. And it, it the play ended up with an illegal procedure on the play. But I noticed Utah didn't run with him. And like, it was like they knew he wasn't, like, you know, they were going to snap the ball to the running back, and Utah wasn't honoring Bo going in motion. And I thought that was really interesting. I don't know. Do you get that film? Even if there's an illegal procedure, do you get to see the play anyway? Oh, yeah, we get those snaps. I mean, we get the – the game film, but we still get TV copy. I watch some decent amount of TV copy, and so you you get it all. I will tell you from an offensive guy, I've told our defensive staff, all these teams are getting wildcat, and they're going to mm-hmm. snap it to the running back or whatever. So rarely do they actually throw the ball to the quarterback if he split out a receiver. And I just say don't even cover the guy. <laughs> and so maybe Utah has some of the same thinking. Motion goes from the quarterback. Don't even mess with the guy. It's going direct <laughs> snap to the running back. They looked at him like he was crossing the street, and they were just watching a guy cross the street, and then they went right back to the running back in the backfield. Uh, Jonathan Smith is with us. Uh, how about you guys health-wise? Uh, Jack Coletto says he's trying to get on the field. He hopes to go. Uh, I know Jaden Grant missed the game last week. How, how do you feel in general about the health of your team? Yeah, I feel like uh, a lot of these guys that are that are banged up want to play in this game, and, and they're going to find a way to play in this game. I mean, both those guys you mentioned – were genuinely banged up last week, but I, I wouldn't be shocked to see Coletto out there running around, Jaden Grant running around. A lot of the guys that we missed last week, I can I can see him playing. In the NFL, is Coletto going to play on the offensive side or defensive side? That's an interesting question. I'll be, uh, be honest. I think he's going to definitely play on teams, but some guys and scouts that come through here really like him in the, that fullback thinking, even the short yardage wildcat. Mm-hmm. See him tackle on defense and in special teams, see if they start him you know, as that role player kind of linebacker that can contribute on teams. I can see him doing both. I, I look at a guy like Kyle Juszczyk with the 49ers, and I see a little bit of Coletto there. He's a good athlete, and Coletto's a little taller than him, but same physicality, same kind of smart player. I You know, I, I, so much of that, I think, depends on getting in the right system, though, doesn't it? It does, you know, the system piece. I do think what favors Jack is just how smart this guy is. And he knows both sides of the ball. He's a quick learner, understands what's trying to get accomplished schematically, offense, defense, special teams. I just know whoever ends up taking him in that the NFL is going to be really happy. All right. So for you guys, what do you plan for in this game? You know, can you drill down on that? Well, you know, definitely opportunity to win nine games. Uh, that's that's a something that hadn't happened a lot. I think the long-term goal, too, if you can get nine, then you can have opportunity to get in ten. And this place hasn't seen 10 in a long time and hadn't done it very often. Um, again, they enjoy playing at home, and they've got some pride now in playing in Research Stadium. We've had some success, and we want to keep that going. Um, so there's a ton of motivation for these guys to play well, not just for like, the win total, opportunity at home, to finish the thing at home. We're celebrating almost you know, 20 seniors that have given a lot to this program. 
Uh, so there's a lot to play for. How do you uh, – I watched last week as Oregon did this, and Dan Lanning's on the field. It's senior day, and then he's got to run in and coach. Like, how much of a distraction does that senior day thing become on game day? Yeah, you know, there's some to it now. I mean, I think it's very meaningful for those guys to be announced, come out, the crowd. Uh, I get to see them, and then they end up about at the 50-yard line with their family. Uh, but there's some emotions that come with that. And, you know, the early in the game, sometimes that, I don't like the word distraction, but that can get them out of their, their game a little bit, how emotional they are. Uh, but it's important stuff. It's, it's part of college football that I think is great pageantry that you celebrate these guys that have been around the place for a long time, done a ton for the program. And so we'll do the same. And then once that announcements and whatnot pregame's done, we'll get in that locker room and, and take the field. You, uh, if I got a time machine, I could go back to 2018. You, you were two and ten. And if I had told that guy, you know, towards the end of the season, hey, uh, stay the course here. Four years from now, you'll be playing for your ninth win at the end of the season. Um, you probably would have mapped that out, but man, there was some growth in there. There was some steps you took in year two and year three that were necessary. Yeah, there's no question that uh, there were steps needed to be taken. I'm still pretty proud of 2019. I mean, yeah, you're right on. First year, 18, we're two and ten, but that group in 2019 is a first down away from going to a bowl game, which hadn't happened for a while. And where we were at to go to a bowl game would have been pretty sweet. Uh, and then, you know, 20, COVID, all of that was tough. Um, and then obviously 21, getting over the hump for the bowl game. And we still felt like we had more to us in that season. Um, and then, you know, we're playing this year, and, and we've had a, a win or two more, had some really close wins and had some really close losses. Uh, that's how it goes. This thing's competitive. Uh, I've just enjoyed and appreciated being around these players, these coaches, and, and got an opportunity to do it again on Saturday. All right, so I, I've been talking to a lot of people about Pac-12 Coach of the Year awards and stuff, and and I'm wondering from a coach's perspective, I'm, I'm hung up on how much people should consider recruiting and the transfer portal when they're talking about coaching. Because when I think about coaching, I think about making the best of what you have, like who's on your roster, but there's certainly part of coaching is getting that roster together. How, where do you stand on that, like the recruiting yeah. and the portal part? That's, it's all it's all t- kind of together, you know, coaching, you know, the actual game and playing on Saturdays, but this it's a huge, your roster is a, a factor and, and how well you're coaching because obviously the better player you have and, and what you're doing with the players you, you get. And so the recruiting end, um, it, it, it's huge and it's an interesting topic. I think about the coaching this year, too, there's so many guys doing a great job. I even think about this quarterback thing. Like, we got the email a couple of days ago from the Pac-12. Okay, here's the nominees for, mm. you know, first team all league. And you get this list of quarterbacks. And there's so many big-time quarterbacks this year. <laughs> like, how do you decipher who's the best and voting for and things? So uh, there's a lot to think about. Yeah, I think it's a cool thing that we got so many coaches, quarterbacks, and programs doing, doing great this year. Yeah, yeah, I look back at 2019. Justin Herbert was an honorable mention. Like, to me, and some of that was, I think there were some guys that went, hey, we don't like Oregon. We're not going to vote for him. I'm sure there's some of that going on, right? But he was a third-teamer on on 2019. I think we're going to have another year like that where you have Caleb Williams and Cam Rising and Michael Penix and Cam Ward, and, you know, you got a bunch of guys that, you know, are really, really good. I know you can only vote for two of these guys. It's like first team and second team. That's all you get to vote for, two quarterbacks. And there's 
I don't know, seven guys that you can make arguments for in this league. I, think, I mean, you didn't even mention Bo Nix. This guy's yeah. been, been great all year. And, so, and that's not just quarterback. I mean, there's multiple positions like that. I look at us defensively playing as good as anybody in this league. We've got a lot of guys that are contributing. Uh, but are they the, the superstar to get that first first pick or second pick in the vote? You know, And, again, I, I get it. We, we vote all conferences meaningful and whatnot. Um, but it's just not that that easy each each program having to make those votes. Do you wait until the Monday after the title game to cast your vote, or do you fill it out now and get it out of the way? Yeah, I think yeah we're going to wait. Uh, you know our process. We got the nominations right, and so I kind of digest it, and then I really what I do is walk the hall and I go talk to our coaches, and mm. so whatever our secondary coach. Hey, tell me about these receivers, and then you weigh like how well they played against us. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, and the Pac-12 has done better each year. It feels like of giving the information, they get the whole stats and what these guys yeah. have done, um, and so you can read up on that. Um, and so, but I do get in the take of the the coaching staff. You know, just the biggest impression is when we played that particular player, but also you see the body of work. And then there's two teams in the league we didn't play, and so you kind of digest all of that, and then we'll make a call after the championship game if there's a position or two that. You know, we're uncertain on. I, I think this game is going to be really close. I picked you guys. I picked it 28-27. I think it's going to be in the 20s. I think points are going to be valuable. I think uh, your defense has been lights out, you know. And I actually think if there's a blowout in this game, I, I think I would lean to you guys because I think defensively you could give them some problems. How How proud are you of the fact that we're talking about your defense being formidable just a few years after it was not good. Like, your defense yeah. was terrible early. I mean, I'm being nice. Yeah, there's no question. It feels quite a bit different uh, than a, a few few years ago. And that, and that group has done an awesome job. It starts with these players, Trent Bray and that defensive staff. Um, but, you know, each year is new, and this team is a little bit different. But there's no question we've been led by our defense this year, and we're going to need them again against an explosive offense. Um uh, you know, I'm a little bit with you, too, on the lower side in regards to scoring in this game, but you never know how these games play out. Yeah. Um, we got to do a great job with the ball um, and play some defense, counting on our crowd to be a huge factor in it and win the thing in the fourth quarter. All right, Coach, I'll see you at the stadium. Have a great Thanksgiving, and uh, good luck to you this week. Yeah, you too. Happy Thanksgiving. There it is. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach. A uh, lot to talk about. He's not going to give me the game plan. He's not going to tell me what he's running on the first play of the game. He's not even going to tell us, uh, nor would Dan Lanning, who is healthy and re- who's really not. But I hope you get a feel for how he's approaching the game, how uh, I think both teams are a little anxious when it comes to this game, in a good way. I don't mean it like they're anxious and nervous in a way that it will be counterproductive. I think we got some good butterflies going in this, in this game, uh, this Civil War football game. I'm going to call it the Civil War until they give it a name. Uh, especially after the conversation I had with the professor, the expert on American history and Civil War history, who said, hey, uh, there are a lot of civil wars, and they're, they're, wars are not fought for just one reason. Uh, I want you to leave it here. Got the bald face truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Top of the hour, it'll be Peter Sampson and The Pulse that will take you into your Thanksgiving. Peter, what are you going to do on The Pulse? Are you going to be spatchcocking? 
Oh, I'm going to be spatchcocking, baby. You know it. I've got my chef's hat on. I'm going to be breaking turkey breast. Going to be cooking some gravy in here. It's going to be a good time. I like that. You got a cooking show going. I wish, man. That's the dream, isn't it? <laughs> Will you have something in your glass? Is that part of the uh, part of the deal? Or you know, what, what is that? Just a Friday thing? That's just a Friday thing. Like I could have done it today, but that's you know, it's it's Friday at six p.m. Everyone's looking ahead to the weekend. It's been a hard you know week's work. Whether you're out in the job site, the weather's bad. You're in the office, wasting away under fluorescent lights. What are you drinking, man? How are how are yeah. you celebrating the weekend? I love it. It does kind of feel like a Friday, and I know a lot of people uh, have jobs, or some people have jobs where they'll work on Thanksgiving and they'll work on Friday, especially in the retail industry on Friday, and uh, I don't want you to feel like I'm not thinking about you. I am. Uh, I'm here for you, though. I will, uh, you know, the podcast of this radio show will be here, uh, and you can grab it if you missed any of today's show, if you really are uh, having a, uh, having, needing your fix on uh, Thursday or Friday, you can grab that. Also, the Konzano and Wilner podcast, if you haven't listened to the latest episode, we did a special Thanksgiving week episode of that podcast. And uh, I will be writing, as always, at johnconzano.com and throughout the weekend. i got a really cool thing going on Saturday at the game formerly known as the Civil War. Um, I have all season long had two photographers in particular. Three. There's been three or four photographers that have worked games here in the state of Oregon. Uh, had one of them break his his uh, hand, and he couldn't uh, shoot photos uh, for the second half of the season. But Serena Morones has been shooting photos of the Ducks and the Beavers all season long. She will be at Saturday's game at Reeser Stadium shooting one team in particular. And Najee Soccer, who has uh, shot also the Ducks and the Beavers game, and he worked the uh, USC-UCLA game last weekend for me, He'll be at the game as well. So I'm going to have two photographers inside Reeser Stadium going behind the scenes with the team. So you're going to get really special, you know, candid photographs of the teams, the players, the coaches that you wouldn't normally get. So we're going to, the aim is to take you somewhere that you've never been as a fan. So if you want to see those photos, just mosey over on Saturday to johnconzano.com and the photo galleries will be up. Ducks photo gallery, Beavers photo gallery. We're going to be all over it. Uh, and then we will be at the Pac-12 championship game as well in Las Vegas with photographers and myself covering the game, no matter who plays in it. So uh, for people, and look, I've not been one of those people who geeked out on the photography stuff before. When I was writing at newspapers over the years, I'm going to be honest here, I often took it for granted that we had a photographer or two at the game. And when I went out on my own, I went, gosh, what do I do for photos? And I very quickly talked to some of the photographers who said, you know, they felt like in a lot of ways they were invisible and their photographs weren't being used correctly. And I said, look, what could we do gallery-wise on game day to bring readers and fans to places they've never been before? Like, could we do galleries that had extensive photo galleries that had the kinds of photos that you could only get uh, at our web website? And they were like, yes, and here's how. And so we made some adjustments even during the season where we started putting more photos and more candid photos and more fan photos and more cheerleader photos and band photos and tailgate photos into those galleries. And let me tell you, huge hits, huge. I had no idea. And I find myself perusing the galleries from games earlier in the season and going, oh, wow, that was it just brings you there in a way that sometimes maybe a column can't bring you there. So it's been really neat to work with Serena 
It's been neat to work with Tim Healy, who shot photographs early in the season, shot a few games. Najee Soccer shot, uh, has been shooting games. He's fantastically talented, as is Serena and the others. And, you know, I've got somebody shooting the Apple Cup game on Saturday night at 7.30. And then uh, last week we had Najee was at the uh, UCLA-USC game. And, by the way, interesting story, guys. So Najee's he's he's great. Like, he goes above and beyond. He's like, hey, I want to shoot this UCLA-USC game. So, okay, we'll fly you down there. He goes down to this game to shoot it. He's at the Rose Bowl. Comes away with fantastic photography, including the post-game celebration, where, like, Caleb Williams is up on the ladder instructing the USC marching band it, after the game. But before the game, he, he tried to fly, fly a drone. He has a drone. And he tries to fly them over the stadiums and get these great stadium shots. But apparently, like, a lot of the, lot of the police forces in, in the areas around stadium don't like drones above the stadium. We know that. We've seen NFL or Major League Baseball games get kind of interrupted by drone action. But Najee was working well before the game, and usually the software that they use to fly the drones will pop up with a warning saying, hey, you're not allowed to fly in this space. It happened at Research Stadium earlier this season. He got an alert, said you're not allowed to fly your drone over the stadium. He respected that, put his drone away. But he was in Pasadena, and he gets his drone out, and he's trying to fly it above the Rose Bowl to get this great shot. And all of a sudden, boom, he's got police force and troopers and everything around him going, you know, what are you doing with this drone? And, and he says, okay, I'm going to bring it down. Well, it happened to be a little breezy. He's bringing his drone down. And they're, you know, they're cool about it. They're kind of just telling him, hey, we just need you to take the drone down. We realize you're not doing anything bad here. And he's bringing his drone down, and he ended up flying the drone accidentally into the canals that are right by the Rose Bowl Stadium, the water canals. And I am sad to say that Najee's drone is no more. It went away. <laughs> it floated down the canal and went away. I told him, I'm so sorry you lost a drone in the process of shooting that game. But his photography off that game was fantastic. Check it out at johnconzano.com. Have a great Thanksgiving. Stick around for Peter Sampson and the Pulse. I'm thankful for you listening. I'm thankful for your being here. Peter, Stephen, you and your families have a great Thanksgiving. I hope you have a, a, a great Thursday, and I'll catch you next week, guys.